Welcome to the Sneaky Dragon Listening Party with my dad and my sister Mary. Well, hello, partygoers, and welcome to episode two of our final novelty mix episode. I didn't know what I was going to call it. Yeah, I, was, no I wasn't really sure where you were going there. I was like, episode two? <laughs> of your, I was like, okay, the novelty. So the second, well, this is the second side, or the second episode yeah. of our final right. novelty mix episodes. Yes. Okay. That's what I'm trying to say. Right. Because we'll never have... Another novelty mix after this one. That's kind of sad. This is the final novelty mix, man. Yeah. No more songs people write in and go, is that a novelty? I don't know. Why does this seem pretty? See, Dave, your your qualifications for what is and is not a novelty song seem very, very, very vague and also too broad. Very broad. Dad's like, if it tells a story, it's a novelty song. Yeah, I agree with that. That's ridiculous. No, it's not at all. It is. That's a novelty song. No. If it tells a story... So, Casimir Pulaski Day by Sofiane Stevens is a novelty song. It doesn't really tell a story. Yes, it does. It doesn't tell a story. It does tell a story. It tells fragments of a story, but it does not tell a complete beginning-to-end story. Right. Okay. Whereas something like Answering Machine... Yes. ...tells you, like, a cute story. Right. But I don't think that the novelty elements of that come from the narrative... Or come from the story, the fact that it has a story. I think that the novelty elements come from... Like the dueling singers, the um, like helps. the narrative, the way that they sing, like just like this, their style yeah. of singing yeah. is quite novel. Um, the sound effects, yeah, you know, like all of those. There's no sound effects, but the person going deet. Well, yeah, that's like a sound effect, okay. you know. Sure. Yeah. Uh, no, those all help. Yeah, but oh. also the fact that it tells a story mm. is to me makes it a novelty song. Okay. Anything that's like a pastiche, or tells a story, mm-hmm. or has goofy sound effects, right? Or has a weird approach to a, to music. Mm. Well, I would agree with most of those, but not with the story. I think that there are songs that tell a story yeah. that aren't novelty songs, such as. Um. Well, you already shot down my Casimir Pulaski day <laughs> yes, one because it doesn't. It's not. It's not because that's a, like a that's like an impressionistic. Uh, it is a, it's, it's telling like a part of a story, but it's yeah. in an impressionistic way. It's about right. the sensations of that experience more mm. than more than like saying this happened, this happened, this happened, and right. this happened, and then having a cute ending for it. Right. You know, which Answer Machine does. Well, yeah, but I don't like that's that's my point though. Is that not all story songs have cute endings? And I don't think that a novelty song has to necessarily be funny either. Like that's not to me is what makes a song a novelty song. It doesn't have to like. You know, I don't think any of us are like busting the gut rolling around in the aisle at any particular novelty song, whether it is supposed to be funny like The Streak, or whether it's something that maybe is more of a melancholy song like like Mr. Bojangles, which once again is a story song to me, and I think of it as a novelty song. So right. <laughs> there you go. But it's a melancholy song, and it's still good. And to me, novelty doesn't mean it's bad. It just means it just means that it falls into like a kind of a a genre of, of of music where I think it's more about the novelty of that record. And the problem with a song like those kind of songs is that once you've heard them, unless they don't, unless they have something that's 
arresting about the about the music that's interesting about the music the song kind of is kind of over once you've heard it once you get it like once you get to the punchline well you've heard the song there's no need to ever listen to it again unless you really like that song right well, we'll talk about it a little bit when we get to one of the songs on this on this uh on this disc hmm. okay all right all right i don't know i just i i'm just i still do not agree with you that's fine you don't agree with me <laughs> I am not a fascist dictator, so people are allowed people are allowed to disagree with me. It's just of course you're not allowed to live in the house anymore, you have to move out. Right, of course. And live in your car. But other than yeah. that, I am not a fascist dictator. Right. You know. I'm just gonna send you to an organ harvesting camp. <laughs> but don't think of me as a fascist dictator. But when I'm at organ harvesting, I was gonna take away your Hammond. I'm not allowed to play your Hammond organ anymore. Uh Are you okay. still looking for songs? You're still looking for stories? Well, songs? I'm j i am I can't remember the name of the song. Okay. But it's not Describe it to me. You wouldn't know it. Oh, okay. Then don't describe it to me. Yeah. But anyway, what's the first song, Dad? <laughs> well, I didn't know we were already finished this. Okay. What? We already f- finished our... Well, I thought that we agreed to disagree. That's fine. We agreed to disagree. That's true. I don't know what else. What else did you... What, what else do you want to talk about? Oh, I don't know. How are you? How's it going? Well, I'm good. It's good. That- hey, that's something I was thinking about, actually, mm, today. Yes. Is it last time we did the show? Uh-huh. It was my birthday. Right. And this week we're doing the show. It's uh-huh. not your birthday. That's true. Most most of the time, yeah. it's not my birthday. I know that we record the show. It's true, or just in general, to be honest. Yeah. Like the vast majority of the time, it's not my birthday. No, it's true. So it's. I yeah. just thought that was worth noting. Is it the last last episode? Okay, it was my birthday, mm-hmm. and it was kind of I don't know. It wasn't like the greatest birthday I've ever had because I had to sit into a room. And not that I like don't like talking to oh, you. Oh wow, I, that's no, I didn't mean rude. it like that. I didn't mean it like wow, that. Wow, Dad, we got to spend like three hours together. <laughs> that's true. Dad's out here like, nice. oh, what a terrible birthday! I just spent three hours sitting and talking with my daughter about music, my favorite thing to sit and talk about, and I got to bore her talking about Ten uh, CC for a million years. Well, actually, now that you say it like that, it does mm-hmm. make it a lot better. <laughs> that was a good birthday. <laughs> But anyway, and we, and we ate of, pizza yeah, and watched... We didn't eat pizza? On your birthday? Did we eat pizza? Yep. Oh, it was a good it was And a good we birthday. watched... Part of a m- most, movie. Most of a, of a good movie. Yeah. And we had to turn it off. Yeah. So, yeah. There it, are, like, three it, movies recently yeah. that I just haven't finished. It just feels like, if it's your birthday, that you should be able to, like, relax. Mm, yeah. Watch a whole movie. Yeah. Not be obliged to go outside. And not that I don't... Might, I love doing this with you, dear. I know. Don't get this. Don't get me wrong. Yep. I love doing it. But we could have done it the day before. I know. I and said- then had it night off. But yes. we just things didn't work out that way. Yeah. So that's how it goes. It's fine. But I was just going to say, you know, it's my birthday last time. Mm-hmm. And then this week, it's not your birthday. Yeah. Well, yeah, one of my old bosses What used a coincidence, to- right? Not at all. One of my old bosses used to always take her birthday off and she would always go and get a massage hmm. on her birthday. She'd always take the day off work and get a massage. That's interesting. What made her think she deserved that? It was her birthday. She worked hard. I guess. Did you t- do you take your birthday off? No. Me neither. My birthday. <laughs> this weird thing. Yeah. Where I feel like my birthday is always on a Thursday. <laughs> okay. And like I know it's not realistically. Yeah. yeah. But like every year I'm every like, oh, my birthday's on a Thursday again. Yeah. Like every year, and I've said that to Duncan, and he's like, "Your birthday's not always on a Thursday." That it can't be. And I'm like, I know, but I feel like my birthday is always on a Thursday. Yeah. And let me just, let me see what it is this year. I think it was, it wasn't a Thursday this past year. It's not going to be a Thursday this year. I'm pretty sure I was born on a Thursday. Uh, it's a Wednesday this year. But like, I think that's you the, might have been born on a Thursday. I, I was born on a Thursday. Yeah, um, but, yeah, cause, it was, yeah. Because yeah. uh, sometimes when you fill out forms, mm-hmm. you go back to the year 
And it shows the calendar and it shows what day. Yeah, yeah. Yep. That's right. I was helping my coworker fill out a form once and I was like, oh, you were born on a Saturday or whatever. And she was like, what? How do you know that? And I was like, it's just, you know, the thing. And she's like, that's so cool. I don't even think she knew that. Hmm. I think I was born on a Saturday as well. Oh, were you? Five minutes to midnight. Is that a song? No. I'm just saying I was born at five minutes to midnight on a Saturday. Hmm. So you were almost born on the 23rd. Yeah. I came out the last minute. That is me. I, procra- I like to procrastinate. Hmm, that's true. All right. Um, what are you looking up now? The day you were born. Oh, okay. Oh, I have to go far. back so far. Taking a, taking it's a million true. Uh, February 22nd. It was a Tuesday. Oh, a Tuesday? Well, I was really quite wrong. 1960. Yep. 1966? Yep. Huh. Mom was born on a... On on a Wednesday. Huh. That's why we get along so well. Yep. All right. That's it. That's why you get along so well. Yeah. I was born on a Tuesday and she was born on a Wednesday. Yep. I don't think you get much closer than that in terms of your, like, your your birth, your birth dates. You are four years apart. Well, yeah. And seven months apart or something. I know, but here's the thing. No. You think that, but here's the thing, Ray. My birthday's in February. Uh Uh-huh. Hers is in October. Yep. So I always turn older than she does. So I'm actually older than she is by, what is it, eight months or so? Yeah, I know. Well, but she's four years older than you. But if you think about it. No. In the year. No. Mine is February. No. No. (laughs) Well, yeah, because I'm I'm born in September and he was in November. That's why I'm the older sister. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And also why you're older than mum. Right. Yes, exactly. <laughs> your birthday's in September. Yeah. <laughs> in October. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, I used to know someone whose birthday yeah. was the same day as her mom's. So her and her mom are the same age, which is pretty weird. That is weird. Yeah. But probably handy for going out. They could both go to the bar together. Yeah. True. Yeah. From a very young age. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Well, enough of our novelty. Hmm. Isn't that novel, probably? <laughs> anyway, <laughs> birthdays. Should I tell a story with a, with a funny ending? Dad, I have a question for you. Oh yeah, ask away. Did you celebrate your what's that called? Your golden birthday or whatever? What is that? What is a golden birthday? That's like the I don't know what it's called, but that's the year that you turn yeah. the age that is the day you were born. Twenty second. Yeah. No, probably not, hmm. because one is I didn't know that was a thing. Okay. And also, I was really terrible at celebrating my birthday in my 20s. That's fair. I think the only day I celebrated... Actually, I didn't even celebrate. I, I made a point of going to bed before midnight when I turned 20. Okay. Because I didn't want to turn 20 and it was just the same day. That seemed sort of boring to me. I wanted to wake up and then I would be 20. Right. Okay. So I went to bed. But what happened was I went to bed 15 minutes after midnight. I procrastinated and I ended up... Classic. Ru- I ruined it anyway. Yeah. But I pretended I didn't. Right. I just... Play, play the next morning. I was like, oh, I got up and oh, I my birth, my birthday now. I turned twenty. Hmm. You should have gone by um by daylight savings rules. What are daylight well, savings rules? Well, the time changes at like two a.m. Oh, okay, rather okay. than at midnight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, that's a good point. Hmm. Should have done that. Yep. Didn't know that either. Now later, I know about the golden birthday or whatever it's called. Whatever it's called. How about when I turn the age of my birth year? Is that a golden? <laughs> when you turn one thousand nine hundred and sixty-six. I was just thinking 66. Oh. Not, just leave out the 19 part of it. <laughs> okay, yeah. I'm not expecting to live that long. Gosh, I hope not anyway. <laughs> All right. Well, that's well, not really fair for me and Eve. What's that? Because we, we would have to be 94 and 97 for that. Yeah. I didn't say it was fair. 
Oh. I just said, can I celebrate that instead? I mean, you can. All right, I will. It's obviously the better one. I guess so. Well, it is fast approaching. It's not fast approaching. It's <laughs> ten, <laughs> 10 years away, but okay, thank you. Thank you. It will feel like it will feel like it's fast approaching. <laughs> fast approaching. But I guess you're getting up to your Oh no, you missed your golden. Yeah, birthday. I did. And you didn't know about it either. No, I did. Oh. But I was just too anxious to mention it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to. I not want to get in trouble. <laughs> We've always made a big point of. I always have made a big point of your. Of, of I want to get in trouble for what? For asking you to be special. <laughs> Silly. Yeah. Well, what can you do? Indeed. What can you do when you're us? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Always come by it honestly. Yeah. True. <laughs> All right. That's right. People go. You're really going to play, Mary. That's because I'm so anxious. <laughs> All right. Let's 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 play our first song everyone. Let's get this novelty show on the road, as they say. Um so we're going to start with a song that many people probably know this song. When I put it on this mixtape I was kind of thinking no one knows this song but then when I was looking up it turns out it's in a couple of very popular movies, which I didn't realize when I when I did it. But anyway, let's listen to The Chips and the song is Rubber Biscuit. Dude had again. No, 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 did you overhear of a wish sandwich? Well, it's the kind of a sandwich that you're supposed to take two pieces of bread and wish you had some meat. Oh, no, 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 the other day, I ate a ricochet biscuit. Well, it's the kind of a biscuit that's supposed to bounce off the wall back in your mouth. If it don't bounce back, <laughs> you go hungry. Do, 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 the other day, I ate a cool water sandwich and a Sunday go to meat and bun. Do, 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 Hmm, what you want for nothing? A rubber biscuit? Do, 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 Alright, and we're back. I was actually contemplating trying to imitate the song, but then I realized I couldn't imitate it. It's impossible to imitate. Uh, what do you think of it, though, Mary? I thought it was fun. Yeah. It got stuck in my head, so that's a good sign. <laughs> that's a good sign. Yeah. And would it fall under your particular rubric, your rules, hmm. for a novelty song? Mm, I don't know. 
Nothing about it seemed very novel. <laughs> well. <laughs> I, to me, I think, well, there's a lot of doo-wop that would kind of fall under the novelty. Yeah, I mean, rule, like, I it's hard to say what, for some genres, it's hard to say what's a novelty song and what's just a song in that genre. Yeah, yeah. You know, and is like, is every song in that genre a novelty song? Are there mm. some that aren't? Is there, yeah. like, something about that genre that is, like, inherently novel? And, yeah, I, I don't know. I would, no. yeah. I think you're right in a, to a certain degree. I mean, there is that, the, there's that element of of do up with the sort of nonsense syllables that yeah. that kind of automatically lend. But I mean, like a song like Blue Moon, like you know, that starts off with a ba 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 ba, and then it goes into the song, which is yeah. just like a straight song. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, you're right. It, you could think of that song as being like a novelty song, but it's not. It's just in in that particular genre of singing there, or the style. There's that there's that bit of that bit of vocalese to it. So, yeah, I I do think this song falls under novelty. There are, I'll put this in quotation marks, there are jokes that are told in between the, the verses. <laughs> um, why, why are you laughing? Oh, it's just your jokes in quotation marks. <laughs> yeah. Very generous of you. <laughs> well, I just feel like they're, I mean, I don't even know where they funny at the time. I don't even, I can't tell. Like, I can't tell yeah. what, like, the song is almost completely alien to me, hmm. you know, in terms of its... Everything about it is alien to me. It, you know, it's what what it's trying to say. I know what it's trying to say, what they're trying to say, but even there, it just it it seems odd. Um, and when you read about it, it still seems odd. So the reason I said it was, has been in some big movies. It's been in a Martin Scorsese movie. It's been in Mean Streets. I've seen it's it. Using Mean Streets. I don't. I don't think I've seen a Martin. No one I have. I've seen Taxi Driver. That's Martin Scorsese. Right? That's a very good movie. Yeah. yeah. I think it's the only Martin Scorsese movie I've seen. Wow. Is that the one you saw when you were a baby? No, we watched it when, uh, at Uncle David's when oh, I was a teenager. Okay, okay. Yeah. Huh. Well, you should see more of them. Particularly Goodfellas. Uh, I don't I don't know. I don't love, like, mafia movies. Okay. Okay. Yeah. This is a very well-made film. But anyway. No, I, I know. I know. They, I'm sure that, they, you know, that and, like, all those mafia movies, I've heard mostly exclusively good things about them. Yeah. I'm just like, eh. <laughs> As a genre, I'm like, eh. Yeah. You know? Uh, and also, it's also in John Waters' Crybaby, which I don't expect you to have seen since nope. it's a movie for weirdos. I don't think I've seen a single John Waters movie. Yeah, they're movies that I... the My favorite ones are movies that I wouldn't want to show you. That's fair. I'd rather that you... I I don't mind you watching them, but yeah. I don't know if I want to show you like a guy with a singing butthole and stuff like that. Like, that's not... <laughs> that's strictly for you to discover. Yeah. You know? Like, if yeah. you want to... If you want to explore like, the world of midnight movies from the 70s... Well, that's the, Like, I'm aware so. of John Waters' movies. Yeah. Like, I know of them. I've mm-hmm. seen, you know, lots of stills from, yeah. like, Pink Flamingos. Sure. Especially. And yeah, yeah. That's probably his, like, most well-known one. Uh, I would say Hairspray would probably be his biggest. Oh, yeah, film, yeah. No, but... you're right. Hairspray would be. Um, but yes, of of that time period. Yeah, like, Hairspray is, I feel like that's, like, a different, like, that's a very mainstream, mainstream yeah, yeah. movie as opposed to Pink Flamingos, which is not. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, but it's like the most mainstream of his weird ones, I guess. What is Pink Flamingos? Yeah. Oh no, not mainstream at all. No, no, no I'm saying the most of his weird ones. The most well known, I guess. Yeah. But I wouldn't say it's. I would say like Polyester would be more mainstream mm-hmm. than than that. Where Polyester is like a parody of like a '50s movie. Oh, okay. You know, and it actually has Tab Hunter in it. You know, right? So, so it plays on all, a lot of the tropes and things. Mm. Whereas my my most favorite film is Female Trouble, but just because it's so evil, although. Pink Flamingos is pretty evil, too. Hmm. It's a pretty evil movie. Yeah. 
That's what I like about them. I just like because there's just a bunch of friends goofing around in right. a movie, right? So that's what makes them. That's what makes them so great. It's just like a bunch of like like the coolest people you could possibly imagine, like hanging out <laughs> together making a movie. Like, that's why Dad also really likes Adam Sandler movies. No, where it's just like a bunch of guys hanging out, using oh. it as an excuse to go on a vacation to somewhere tropical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> only you're leaving out the one thing I said, which was the coolest people. Oh, right, I did forget. That, that is not. I don't Adam know, Dad. Sandler's haven't you friends. seen Uncut Gems? I think that guy's pretty cool. That is not an Adam Sandler movie. <laughs> it's in it. He's in it, but it's not an Adam Sandler movie. <laughs> no, I'm joking. I've not seen that movie actually. You haven't seen it? No. It's really good. I like Good Time. Mm, I haven't seen that one. Oh, that's also very good. But that's that's also on Netflix. That one's more of like a heist movie though, right? It's not a heist movie. It's not? No. Oh, everything I heard about it made made me think it was a heist There is a heist in it, but that's not what it's about. Oh, okay. It's not what it's about. I don't want to explain what it's about. No, that's fair. But it's a very good film. Yeah, similar with Uncut Gems where it's like... It's best to go into it not knowing very much about yeah, it. Yeah, and I feel like I know too much about that film, and it makes me very anxious, the idea of that movie. Oh, it's a very anxious... Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So that's why I've kind of avoided yeah. it. Cause but I'm... it's really good. Yeah, they're very good directors, I think. The yeah. Safety Brothers. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's... Don't watch it with mom, because mom's not going to like it. Well, then that's a problem for me. Because you only watch movies with mom? Yeah. Mm. So I don't get to watch very many horror movies. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And if I try to watch one, like... Later on, like one in the morning. Right, then you fall asleep fall after asleep. eating an entire box of pizza. That is not what happened. <laughs> I ate four pieces of pizza, folks. Four pieces of pizza at one in the morning. Yeah. And I'm getting dragged through the mud over this thing. <laughs> anyway, four okay. pieces. Yep. And two of them are quite small. Right. Because they're ones that no one wanted to eat. So they left right. out the small sliver ones. Yeah. For the poor sucker who was going to eat it at night. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I fell asleep. Yep. Then I woke up at six in the morning, yep. laying awkwardly in a chair <laughs> that has a board for the bottom of it, but a comfortable armchair. And then uh, and then I just got stayed up for the rest of the day because I figured, oh, well, what the heck, I'm up. Might as well just stay awake. Anyhow. Anyhow. Mare. Yes. Mare. Yep. The chips. Oh, yeah. I guess we should the talk chi- about yeah, this Yeah, let's talk about the chips a little bit. Because like I say, they're in Martin Scorsese, they were in Mean Street. So they're, you know, they're kind of well-known. Uh, they were a New York City-based group, uh, which is not unusual for for a doo-wop groups at that time that was kind of that was kind of the the new york city and los angeles were sort of the the um what do you want to call it the center of the doo-wop scenes and i think los angeles was kind of the second part of the second wave doo-wop more than the first but but yeah so the leader of the group whose name was kinrod johnson wrote the song rubber biscuit as an it's kind of a, not necessarily an answer song, but he based it on the marching rhythms of this place he were, he was interning at called Warwick School for Delinquent Teenagers. So I guess part of the, part of this, this structure of this place for delinquent teenagers was to make them march. Okay. And I don't, doesn't, they don't say anything else about it than that. Right. So it's just like really like a kind of an, like a question mark hanging in the sky for me of hmm. why there were marching rhythms at a del- school for delinquent teenagers. Well, I think that that, I can see that as they often like that kind of place or like there is sort of an idea of like sending troubled youth, especially like boys mm-hmm. to like military academy yeah. or to like m- places run in like a military style will help like straighten them out or whatever because of the routine. Yeah. So I wonder if that, and I think that that like marching falls into that, right? Where you're kind of like, sure. yeah, it's about like routine and following direction and probably also like the physical activity of it getting out some energy or whatever, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, no, that, well, that's probably the case. And so, yeah, so he um, he wrote this song. And so then this record label, Josie Records, 
uh, heard the song, so they signed the band. And though the song actually didn't chart, i.e. they had low sales, it was actually a favorite of DJs across across the U.S. So it was oh, a really? like, super popular song yeah. to play. It just didn't sell, which right. is weird, but hmm. it was popular as a radio song. Uh, so because of that, the group was able to tour with like the sort of the, the big acts of the day, the big right. kind of do-up acts of the days, like the Dells and the Cadillacs, mm-hmm. and also with Bo Diddley. But they never really had a follow-up, so of course that, that pretty much spells the end of a band. Yeah. You can't, if you can't, you can't survive on one song. So now the song's lyrics aren't I, they're kind of impenetrable to us now, but at the time, they were all references to Johnson's life living in sort of uh, po- poverty, like sort of lived, living, growing up in Harlem, living in poverty. And so there's things that mentions in there that are kind of the, a wish sandwich. So a sandwich you wish you had, basically. And then uh, a ricochet bun, which of course is the another name for the title, title, um, snack food of the song rubber biscuit okay a ricochet bun something that bounces off the wall and if you miss it you go hungry right and then he also mentions um which is yeah and then rubber biscuit is um something that which which is all you can expect for nothing so if you don't have any money what do you expect a rubber biscuit right and then a cold or cool water sandwich which they mentioned in the song as well is watermelon okay he also says he says i had a cool water sandwich and a sunday go to meat and bun and a sunday go to meat and bun was a Phrase, it was a slang f- term for taking an old lady, usually your grandma, to church. Oh, okay. And that's what a Sunday go to meat and bun was. Right. So so all these things are references to actually not food at all. Right. But just the desire for food. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Was, the, was the idea that if you take your grandma to church, then she'll make you lunch? I don't think that was the idea. I think oh. that this was this, uh, the idea was that maybe you'd get like a little bit of coffee, a bit of coffee and hmm. snacks at church. Right. So you got a Sunday go to meat and bun, hmm. but nothing too thrilling. Yeah. And okay, so the song itself was was written by Johnson, but if you look at the single, it's credited to Johnson Levy because Josie Records was a subsidiary subsidiary of Jubilee Records, which was owned by this very notorious character called Morris Morris Levy, okay. who was had strong ties to the mafia hmm. and was involved in a lot of like shady, uh, you know records that fell off the back of a truck and ended up being sold in different various places and you know he would and of course all of all the artists on his label all shared songwriting credits with either morris levy or his son in this case this song was shared with his son okay eugene levy that's right popular character actor beloved sctv alum son of a notorious gangster mm-hmm. no i'm just joking dad you're levy. dad we're gonna get hit with a with a uh, a libel suit <laughs> It's called satire. Anyway. Yeah, it's um, fair use. It's fair use of someone else's name <laughs> in a completely litigious way. Um, yeah, so, yeah, Levy is like, Levy's a guy who sued John Lennon at the end of the 60s for putting, using a little bit of Chuck Berry lyric in Come Together. Hmm. And so, yeah, his he controlled uh, Chuck Berry's publishing company, publishing rights. And so, he sued John John Lennon for using... And so John Lennon settled at a court that rather than like pay him money, mm-hmm. he would record a, a collection of rock and roll songs, which Morris Levy that would then have a share of when it was sold. Okay. And what happened then was, so John Lennon recorded this rock and roll album. Levy basically stole the tapes and produced his own version of the album, which he then sold hmm. until he got a cease and desist order from uh, John Lennon's actual label. Right. Which I believe was 
capital at that point? I can't remember now for sure. But um, yeah, so they were like, "Hey, we're supposed to sell this, and you get a you get the pro you get some of the proceeds. You get to like take the record and make your own version." Yeah. So I think he sold it as a, a record called The Roots or something like that. Because hmm. it was sold, so I think that's a very a highly collectible John Lennon record nowadays. It was sold by mail order. Oh, okay. You know? So. Right. And like a Sears catalog? <laughs> I don't think a Sears, I think if you were like reading Rolling Stone or Cream, yeah. Cream Magazine or one of those magazines from that time period. just joking. You would, uh, the Trouser Press think, or whatever. I don't know if they sold records, Sears. Well, they, they mostly the, sold like in-house stuff. They did in the stuff. stores. Well, like, yeah, but in the, in the catalog, they mostly sold like in-house yeah. products. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But anyway, so, I, did yeah. a, I did a history talk on the Sears catalog last week. Oh, I see. Yeah. Cool. Did you use some of the catalogs that I have at home here? Well, you have Sears catalogs? Yeah. What? Yeah, I have like reproductions of the old ones. Are you, you kidding can... me? Oh, not at all. How, do, how come I didn't know about that? Oh, they're, they're I great. I need to see them. Yeah, you do. They're cool. They, you can oh, buy man. a house in them. You can buy a farmhouse. I know. I know you can. Yeah, they're fantastic. I have an entire <laughs> dad. I have like entire kit home catalogs bookmarked on my computer and I just look through them all the time. Oh, okay. Okay. How do, oh, man. I wish that I'd known that. I would have brought it in or something. Oh, yeah. That would been cool. Yeah. Too bad. You just didn't mention it to me. I would have told you. I'm pretty time. sure I mentioned it. No, you did not. Because hmm. I would have mentioned it. Hmm. Hmm. <laughs> so even though the chips didn't have a get a top forty hit with it, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi as the Blues Brothers actually released it as a single, released Rubber Biscuit as a single in the late seventies, and they actually reached number thirty-seven on the charts. So uh, I guess Rubber Biscuit bounced back. <laughs> oh, everyone! That's why this show is a novelty, novelty episode. All right. Let's go to another song, Mare. Let okay. us go to uh, Carla Thomas and Otis Redding from the album King and Queen from 1967. This is Tramp. Tramp. What you call me? Tramp. Well, you, did. you don't wear continental clothes or Stetson hats. But I'll tell you one doggone thing. It makes me feel good to know one thing. I know I'm a lot.
All right, and we're back. Mare. Yes. Thoughts on Tramp. I tried to say it like Carla Thomas says a song. Otis, you're a tramp. <laughs> um, Dad, we've talked about this before. Yeah. But you like songs that have two people having a conversation in them. I do like that. Yep. I do like that. And I think the song is perfect for that, even though this song came out the same year as as this it's it's a cover version of someone else's song. Oh, okay. It's it was actually written by a guy named Lowell Folsom, who is a who's like a kind of blues R and B singer. And so he was he was signed to Kent Records, which was an LA-based record label run by this group of brothers called the Bahari Brothers. We've talked about them before. If you've seen the movie about the making of Dynamite, that movie, you know, the movie My Name is, or I mean Dolomite, making oh, of Dolomite. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dolomite uh, is my name? Yeah, he actually was signed to the Bahari Brothers label. Oh, okay. And so you see some actors pretending they're the Bahari Brothers in that film. But the right. Bahari Brothers were, they were kind of like a bit of a downmarket Erdogan, like the people who, who started Atlantic Records. Mm. Uh, Ahmed Erdogan and his brother, I think his brother's name was like Nasuhi. It's one of that. It's hard to say his name. He he was the one who produced a lot of the jazz records for Atlantic. But the Bahari brothers were all kind of the same. They were brothers who really liked blues and, and, and R&B. And so they started this label. But, you know, also they were super exploitative jerks. But at the same time, oh, they also were, they liked the music too. But They made a, they, they owned a record label. Yeah. So apparently when Folsom wrote Tramp and played it for Bahari, Bahari was like, this song is no good. No, no one's going to like this song. It's garbage. And he wanted to like this, you know, he wanted to not release it and have anything to do with it. But he, then because Folsom was so fulsome in his praise of his own song, he played it for some uh, DJs. And the DJs are like, Hey, this was uh, this song's really good. You should you, you have a hit on your hands here. You should put it out. And so he did. I think he got to number five on the on the charts with it, and on the R and B charts, of course. That's where the, he's you know he's going to go higher in the R and B charts. And then he got to number fifty two in the Hot One Hundred, which is pretty good. And so then the Otis Redding and Carla Thomas version came out two months after his version came out, and they got to number two on the R and B, and they got to I think number into the. Got to number twenty six, so into the top forty, which is pretty good, pretty good. So, yeah, it's a it's a lot of fun. The song. So the the idea of this album came, uh, came about because Jim Stewart uh, was inspired by uh, the duets that Marvin Gaye was singing with Tammy Terrell at at Motown, and he thought those were really good and they were really selling. So he was like, "Hey, Otis, you and Carla should get together. Two of the artists on my label mm-hmm. should get together and do your own duets album because it'll really sell. Yeah, sell like hot take, sell like hotcakes, and yeah. so." So it was like, cool. And so um, they had to do it really fast because at that time, Carla Thomas was attending Howard University in Washington, D.C., doing her M.A. in English mm-hmm. for whatever reason. She was like a big selling soul singer, but at the same time, she's also going to university, I guess. Yeah. I guess, you know, her mom and dad probably had dreams that she, go to, she would go to university and yeah. have a university education, which is pretty rare for, for a Southern black girl at that time. So so that was probably a big deal. So oh, yeah, definitely. She, did, she, she went, she got an MA, got an M.A. in English. But also carried on singing. But, um, yeah. Gotta, so they did, gotta have a backup, right? Yeah. Just in yeah. case. So they either recorded the album in three days or in six days. And maybe they recorded the original session in three days before Carla had to go back to school. And then Otis had to do uh, a bunch of overdubs over stuff that she'd already sung because he had, of his touring schedule kind of messed right. things up. Like the bad, bad season of Arrested Development. Oh, where people had to couldn't be in the same shots together because of their well, busy schedule. They had yeah, they like couldn't have everyone together. So there's like no scenes with like Portia de Rossi and Will Arnett together. Okay. I don't think or yeah. like 
Um, yeah, like, no, I don't think that there's any scenes really with, like, Jason Bateman. Yeah. And what's his name? The guy who plays Tobias. What's his name? What's that guy's name? Tobias? Or are you talking about... Um... For Mr. Show? Yes. Bob and David. Oh, David, David Cross. Cross. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> How can I yeah. forget that? Yeah. Mr. Well. Show. Yeah. And since Did you... Oops, oh, sorry. sorry. You... Did you hear about that Jay Johnston guy? Who's that? He was on Mr. Show. Okay. I guess he's like a comedian. Okay. Um, he was like on Bob's Burgers. He played Jimmy Pesto. He's like one of those guys who's like a whole bunch of okay. roles. In, but he was at the Capitol. Oh, was he? Yeah. Part of the riot. Yeah. He's like, I guess he's being like arrested by the FBI for assaulting an officer. Wow. Yeah. Jeez, you get caught up in that stuff, don't people? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They thought they were helping. Yeah. Well, yeah. People, people who were close to him or who like knew him through. Yeah. You know, because he was part of, like, yeah. the scene for a long time. People were yeah. saying it was, like, he'd just fallen into, like, drugs. Oh, okay. And stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Too bad. Mm-hmm. Sad. Yeah, it is. Also sad, mm-hmm. Mary, was this was Rodas Redding's final album, as he died in December of 1967 oh. in a plane crash. So, this was his final album that he recorded. So many plane crashes. In rock history, yeah. It's, uh, well, up until up until the 60s, everyone died in car crashes. Hmm. Like rock and rollers, they all died in car crashes. Right. After the, once the 60s started, everyone died in plane crashes. Right. Uh, although Buddy Holly kind of, he bumped the trend. He's, he was like, right. the, he set the trend early. Yeah. With him, the big bopper. Yeah, what a, what a trend, what a trend center. Yeah, Trendsetter. I, yeah, I'm sure he was happy about it as he went, yeah. as he went down. But yeah, although apparently they would have had no idea they were going down. So. That's good. But yeah, most, like, I was reading a book called The Book of Rock Deaths. Sounds sad. Uh, yeah, it was sad. It was interesting. But, I mean, I already know they're dead. Right. I wasn't, like, surprised. No, I know. Like, Buddy Holly's dead? <laughs> uh, so... No, not like that. just yeah. makes me sad to think about, like, how scared they would have been, you know? Hmm. Hmm. Like I say, it seems unlikely that he knew... Yeah. They, they, they knew they were in trouble. Which is good. They crashed quite quickly. Hmm. Yeah. Totally ne- unnecessary and inexperienced pilot who shouldn't have been flying hmm. in those conditions. Yeah. Typical problem of that time period. Mm-hmm. Or... Still today, of that, you know, like uh, John F. Kennedy Jr. Uh, went going into a death spiral and crashing with his wife and his sister-in-law. You know, yeah. Now, that's a case of an, a pilot who was not had no instrument, had no training in reading instruments. Yeah. While flying, uh, flying at night, trying to use his instruments and and mm. crashing the plane. Mm-hmm. What are you smiling at? I was just thinking about John F. Kennedy Jr. <laughs> oh, you're trying to, that he's going to return. <laughs> yeah. uh. Didn't you know he's coming back for some reason? Isn't that the problem with that kind of stuff, though? When you think about it, is it so? It's so sad and demeaning to these people who, yeah, who have no like can't defend themselves. Oh, totally. Or, you know, like what can John F. Kennedy Jr. say about this? Nothing. Nothing. Yep. It is sad. It is. All right. On that sad note, Mary. Yep. Let's head on to another hilarious song. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I'm really bringing the the laughs this episode. You sure are. <laughs> Thanks for all your... Anyway, I guess I'm the one who brought up Otis Redding, but, I, you know, it's part of the conversation, but... Mm, yeah. Part of the history of that song, I guess I should say. What's interesting, before we go on, what's interesting about the Lowell Folsom song is that all the lyrics, like, all the lyrics, like, in the, in the, in the Otis, the Carla Thomas Otis Redding version, the lyrics that, that Folsom is just singing as part of his character in the song are part of the insults that Carla is, is laying down at, at, at Otis. <laughs> I mean, some of them are just, like, 
True Lake kind of, you know, kind of True Lake pokes at him that he's born in the Georgia woods, which was true. He was born in the Georgia woods. Right. You know, she, she was, I mean, she was the daughter of a highly, of a successful Memphis DJ. You know, she was a city girl. Yeah. She was well-educated, mm-hmm. you know, whereas Otis Redding was, was came, you know, as a true, like, I was going to call him a cracker, but he was black, so he couldn't have been a cracker. Right. That's a white. But yeah, it came thing, up, came up from nothing. Yeah. He was a poor Dirt poor, you know, mm-hmm. all that stuff about broke iron shoes. What you also hear in that that Soul Clan song we listened to a long time ago, and we were doing listening to the Soul songs. There's people in there talking about you know all they had was their dad's broke iron shoes, and you're like, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> was broke iron like some kind of really tough leather? I don't I don't know what it meant, but that's what they wore. They wore broke iron shoes, and you knew if if you wore broke iron shoes, your country. But he had five, four, three. <laughs> I would think that he says I had five, four, three T birds. T birds are Fords. <laughs> oh, it doesn't matter. Anyway, or maybe he's just listing them, and then he says, "I had five Fords, three, three T-Birds, and two two Mercuries, because Mercury is also a subsidiary Ford." I don't know. I don't want to try and defend or read his mind. Anyway, are you looking at what Brogue Iron was? Mm-hmm. Couldn't find it, could you? Nope. No, it's just a weird saying from that time period. I guess I'm sure if we looked it up, we could find it, but it would take a while. All right, let's go into our next song, everyone. This is um, this is the parade. Another song from 1967, Mary. This is uh, a song called Frog Prince. Everyone ready? That's good, because here we go. Princess Dolores found herself lost in the forest She was very frightened, of course, the witch was in the sky She stumbled down to the river, midnight dampness gave her a shiver Snake bet the old cock a fiver, she'd never make the other side Then, all that a horny talking bouncing down the road And we're told the frog he once was Prince Charming The witch's bloom had brought about the doom of our prince And the spell was alarming Hip hop, he came up on the princess She could break the spell If he could I talk her into kisses They would make him well The witch was moving in on Dolores Her evil cries frightened the forest Even Quack and Zay felt remorse But the witch couldn't be Froggy croak to the princess Be so good to grant me your kisses Then I'll show you what bliss is When we hit the other side Princess, make up your mind Remembering reports of kissing frogs You give what she said You must be kidding Frantic all you knew His dreams had never come true He just sat there sitting Zip, zap Jumped upon her shoulder, kissed her once and then Splish, splash, they were in the water How our prince could swim And so the story goes and although nobody knows If it was everlasting The wedding of our lovers, it was used as a cover For a royal happening Ding dong, the castle bells were ringing And the special guest was snake a mare? A dad? Some thoughts about Frog Prince by the parade? Um, 
I thought that this song was pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah. Did it meet your criteria for novelty song? Uh, it certainly met mine. Yeah, I'd say so. <laughs> um, I thought it was also a bit of an earworm. A bit of an earworm? I, yeah, I had it stuck in my head oh, when I was good. at that's a good. store. That's good, because it was a single Okay. for the group. It was a single back with a song called Hallelujah Rocket, which is it's an okay song. But yeah, I really like Frog Print. And, and uh, what fascinates me most about the parade, though, is that one of the, one of the kind of side members, I'll call him, because he didn't actually play with the group live or anything when they did, did performances, but he wrote songs with them and wrote lyrics with them and stuff like that. And that was Stuart Margolin, who went on to act as Angel in the Rockford Files. So it just fascinates me that he was in like a, a group that I really like called The Parade. And I didn't know that when I first discovered The Parade through the song um, Sunshine Girl, mm-hmm. which is a, a great song. I don't I don't think I included it in any of the mixtapes, but it is a great song. The problem with that song is it starts off really quietly, so it doesn't really work very well on mixtapes. Because it's so quiet when it starts mm. with this like finger snapping and, you know, do, 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 do. And it's just like so, so quiet. And you're like, oh, it really like brings down your, your, uh, your, your mixtape when that, right. Like, that's when like that comes in and it takes four hours for the, for the song to get going. Anyhow, it doesn't take quite that long, but it feels like it when you're like, what? Why did the, why did the mood of this, this, this mixtape change? <laughs> but anyhow, we've talked about, the parade before we played a song by them in the past so we will not go into their career again but uh, i just wanted to mention that Stuart margolin connection because i love it so much (laughs) all right so let's get to our next song then okay let's listen to the book of changes oh wow that's a real hippie name the song is i stole the goodyear blimp (laughs) also from 1967 everyone let's let so you just so you know this is Full of 60s songs, this side of the mixtape. I did not, I must have had like a backlog of songs that were from the 60s, and I was just yeah. like, I guess I better use them. Because <laughs> I was trying to keep it varied when I was making these and try it. Yeah. I well, always want to have like mix songs, I want to have like novelty songs, but I always want to have like as much variety as I can. I yeah. want art rock, I want, I want like, you know, synth pop, mm-hmm. I want. I want old stuff. I want yeah. new stuff. It did feel like the first one was the most varied. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And then after that, it kind of, Narrowed down to this this sixties novelty mixtape, yeah, or which makes sense because most, well, it makes sense because a, I think that there's a higher proportion of novelty songs that come out of that time period. I think you're right. And b, yeah, I think that there's a higher proportion of songs in your catalog that come from the this the sixties as well. I think that's true, but I I would agree with you. I think that one of my fast one of the fascinations i have about novel of of what i think of as novelty songs and what i really like are novelty songs that aren't novelty songs like weren't marketed as novelty songs like right. a song like little arrows by lee p lee or you know five five girls in the backseat or whatever you know songs like that uh you know i love onions all those sort of songs they are marketed to be novelty songs you know does the chewing gum lose, it, lose its flavor on the bedpost overnight or um the uh, purple People Eater. Yeah, those are Monster Mash, etc. Yeah, those are novelty songs. Mm-hmm. Whereas these are songs written by people who had a sense of humor, right? And were having some fun. And it feels like nowadays that's kind of gone away. There is still, you know, bands that like to have fun, but yeah, there's there's a real sense nowadays that if you have fun as a band, you're going to lose your cred, right? You lose your street cred. So it's better to not be goofs, mm-hmm. you know. And and yeah, I do think that people who do make funny songs, yeah often don't get an opportunity to make serious songs. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Like, yeah, like Weird Al Yankovic, you know. Yeah. Like that, or like um, one of Eve's favorites, T- Tiny Meat Gang. Who? Tiny Meat Gang. Tiny Meat Gang? Yes. 
Okay, yeah, they never will get a chance to make a serious song. <laughs> but it's more a fault of their name than it is a fault of them doing novelty music. But that's uh, that's Cody Co and Noel. Oh, okay. From YouTube. Okay. Yeah. So, anyway, let's listen to this song. This is uh, the Book of Changes. Okay. With I stole the Goodyear blimp, everyone. When I woke up this morning, I took a walk in the park. I saw something sitting there that hatred made in the dark. There I was just tripping on a big, huge silver cigar. Tied up to the top of a pole like a relic of the Second World War. Still smirking about Tiny Meat Gang over there. Well, but... I was just thinking, I was listening to a song of theirs today. Oh, okay. That's one of my favorite novelty songs. I see. Which is called Club Poor. Okay. And it's about, a, it's about a guy who's too cheap to buy anything at the club. And it has such great lines as, can I get some water? Uh, what's this? And then someone else says, a bottle. He says, uh, no, I meant tap. <laughs> <laughs> or she wants top shelf. I let an ugly guy buy it for her or something. <laughs> you know, all this stuff. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, it's, just, it's fun. It's a fun song. Um, sounds fun, dear. And it also sounds good, which is nice mm. in a novelty song. Sure. For it to be funny and also sound good as cool. a song, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. Um... So what did you think of uh, I Stole the Goodyear Blimp? I thought it was fun. Cool. I like this one. I like the singing. Yeah. I like the music. Yeah? Yeah. Oh, that's great. That's great. So this band was a San Francisco-based band, uh, originally called The Vegetables, spelled V-E-J tables. Okay. Vegetables. And they were kind of significant because their lead singer and drummer was a woman, which at that time, a girl playing drums. Her name was Jan Errico. But as the group started to become more psychedelic and less garage rock, 
she didn't like it very much, and so she left the group and she joined a band called the Mojo Men, another San Francisco group called the Mojo Men, who are Sorry, kind of. What year did you say the song was from? Sixty-seven. Oh, okay. And so she uh, she left. Uh, the vegetables and joined the Mojo Men, and so the vegetables then decided to change their name to be more psychedelic, and so they changed the name to the Book of Changes, which of course is the English translation of the I Ching, the uh, Book of Divination that uh, the Chinese use. You know, where he throws to toss yarrow stalks or coins, and then that will give you uh, some sort of a. It will lead you to a text that you then read and try to decipher what it's telling you. Right, or like people um. Opening the Bible at random and pointing their finger down. Being sure, like, that's this is going to yep. dictate my life, that kind of thing. That's another example of that, for mm-hmm. sure. And, I mean, it's no different. Than <laughs> oh, yeah, it's exactly the same randomly, thing. Randomly allowing a book to... Yeah. But... Um, the other day... Sorry, the other day... <laughs> the other day I was at work. Yeah. And I walked into the room where we do exercise. Yes. And it's like many of our our rooms there it's used for a variety of things sure and one of the things it is sometimes used for is bible study yeah and so there was like a um like a bible yeah or whatever it's called called the bible well it was like a bible and it also had like hymns okay in it or something so it was like i don't know kind of like a different version of it and there's a resident sitting there and she like opened it randomly and she was like i opened it randomly and i read this line and she's like i've never heard this before it doesn't make any sense and it like like the things we do now it totally contradicts it and i was like yeah that's weird huh <laughs> what are the chances of that? <laughs> but it was like something about how women shouldn't be in charge oh, and yeah. just need to like listen to men and she was like i need to talk to my pastor about this and i was like all right well, that's, like, what I was, that's what I was going to, when you said it was the book of hymns, I was going to say, dear, the Bible is a book of hymns. <laughs> well, no, but it was like, because it's used for Bible study and then also for... Yeah, but I meant hymns, H-I-M-S. Oh. <laughs> uh, yeah? Uh, See what he did there? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh. Got it. Yep. Um, but yeah, I just thought that was, but I was like pretty glad I was wearing a mask. <laughs> I was like, I'm like, yeah, that's like the whole thing. It's like pretty contradictory, you know? Huh. One interesting thing about, about the I Ching is that Philip K. Dick wrote his book, The Man in the High Castle, by basing all the actions of the characters in the book on by throwing the I Ching. Oh, interesting. And then interpreting what the, what that what it meant, and then making the characters act in that way. Huh. Weird. What a weirdo. <laughs> well, I mean, yeah, I guess it is weird, but huh. no, I think it's cool. I, I thought it was kind of cool too. I don't think I'd want to do it all the time, but it's kind of fun. I do have the I Ching in the house. Wait, wait, wait. Hold on. Which I've never, but I can't figure out what it's trying to say. So he was basically just playing Dungeons and Dragons, though, right? Well, <laughs> no. Well, well. No. <laughs> kind of, though. But not. A little bit. Well, why do you say that? He's not throwing dice, but okay. But. Because the he is doing a random action yeah. that leads to... Um, an action done by his characters. Yeah, yeah. Which is what you do in Dungeons and Dragons. Like it's different, but yeah. it's essentially the same thing. Okay, he's playing Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, I don't think so. <laughs> okay, <laughs> no, I don't think so. <laughs> I would per se just would prefer to say that he was he was uh, allowing the universe to write the book for him. Okay, that works too. <laughs> I would prefer to say that you are. Well, no, I was going to say that's that's also Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> You're really obsessed with a game you've never played. Nah. Mary. I watched the community episode. I'm good. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's good. All right. So let's go on to your next song. That's enough about the, the vegetables. And okay. Although, I highly recommend people uh, check out 
the Mojo Men with Jan Erico. Hmm. They're also very good. Can I just say one thing? I find it interesting when bands make their name of their group hard to spell. The Vegetables? Yeah, with a J. Yeah, I, this of the time, right? I mean, the, mon- yeah, the Beatles the started Beatles, it, yeah. the Monkees. I mean, it was just the time, time yeah. period where you it looked cool, mm-hmm. and so you did it. You know? Yeah. They weren't the first, and they will never be the last. I guess that's true. There's probably bands nowadays that are still doing the same thing. Yeah, and I mean, I guess at the time, too, if you're looking for vegetables alphabetically in like a record store, mm-hmm. you're not going to get to... Wait. You're going to get to J after G, if that's what you're trying to say. Yeah. <laughs> Just trying to remember the order. I was getting mixed up between F and L. Okay. Huh. Odd. Is it? It's a bit of a problem. Is it? Yeah. There's a lot of letters in there. Um, none of them are too. Um, none of them are too important. I don't think, I don't think that's. Uh, mm. huh. All right. <laughs> oh, oh! I just want to go back to uh, Tramp for a second because there's something I forgot to say about it, which was that it's in a tradition of music. Well, it's a tradition of of play, of street play that was popular in black communities. And it still is, I think, because your, your mama is basically what what that has become the same sort of thing. Okay. Like, your mama is so whatever, mm-hmm. uh, is a form of playing the dozens, as it was called, which is okay. to insult another person. Right. And you would have, like, an insult contest. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of like a... Oh, yeah. Your, your mama is so old. Yeah, yeah. She wrote the Bible or yeah. something. Sure, sure. You know. Yeah. This is a callback. <laughs> yeah. Your mama is so old, she crashed her dinosaur. Right. Yeah, yeah. That kind of... Yeah. Yeah. Exactly right. But the yeah. dozens were, were different, where it was more about... It was more between men. It would be about it would be about belittling them, right? For their in their way their of their masculinity, but also mm-hmm. making fun of like their girlfriends and stuff right. like that, right? So there's a great song by by um, Bo Diddley called "Say Man," hmm. which is one long playing the dozens between him and Jerome Green, his okay. maraca player, his maracas player, and so they both they have this back and forth of insulting each other through the song, and that's the whole song, right? So wait, wait so aren't like rap battles? Similar, Often yeah. like that yeah, too. Yeah, it's playing the dozens yeah. too, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just become more like rap battles are obviously more elaborate than what what something as crude as right. the dozens. Yeah, was. like the difference between just like throwing insults back and forth yeah, and yeah. like doing that, but also making them like rhyme and fit into like a pattern sure, yeah, or whatever. Yeah. And the idea is that you shouldn't be offended by what the other person's doing. That it's right. just a game that yes. they're kind of gaming you and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And you have to try and part of part of what makes you the best of that is that you don't lose your cool. Because as soon as you right. lose your cool, then you've lost, the, yeah. you've lost the game. And that was the same with playing the dozens as well. Mm-hmm. As soon as you lost your, your temper, then you had lost the game. Yeah. You know, the other person had needled you and found your weak point. And right. That was it. So yeah, yeah like, like um like a like a mean like a mean lawyer in a TV sh- in a crime TV show. Sure, sure. I would never put Say Man on a on a mixtape though because Say Man is hilarious the first time you listen to it. Hmm. But every time after that it's not that interesting right. because you've heard all the jokes and all the insults mm-hmm. and the music is just kind of there. Background. Yeah. It's a very simple uh, thing, but it's, you know, it's fine, but it's not, you know, it's not the greatest. Anyway, let's go on to our next song, Mary. Okay. This is Roy Wood. And this is a little bit of cheating, everyone. You'll find out. But I cheated a little bit on this side. But this is Roy Wood. What? This is Roy Wood. From his solo album, Boulders, that came out in 1973. I have 72 here, but I think it's 73. The song is When Grandma Plays the Banjo. And let's give a listen to it right now. When Grandma plays the banjo, she sure don't play it hot. When Grandma plays the banjo, she gives it all she's got and she goes...
Banjo Fest. Yes, it was. I haven't played it for a week. <laughs> uh, yeah, so when Grandma plays the banjo, Mary, what do you think of that song? I thought it was fun. Yes. I like the concept. Okay. I like the execution. Okay. I thought it was good. I thought it was funny. Yeah. Silly. Yeah. Yep. It is silly. I like banjos. It's also it's also re-listenable in its silliness as well. Mm, it's, mm-hmm. it's entertaining enough as a song that you're, you're not like, ugh, I never want to hear this banjo song again. <laughs> it's not the greatest banjo playing in the world. I, what, I mean, I don't but think it's, it's perfectly acceptable yeah, banjo Yeah, it's not playing. supposed to be the best banjo playing in the world. Roy Wood was one of those disgusting jerks who, can, who could play a lot of instruments. Ugh, I hate those people. So on this album, he played... I think he played like 19 instruments on this what? album. Yeah. Ridiculous. <laughs> Different instruments. The only one he didn't play was uh, an, en- an Abbey Road engineer, a guy named John Kurlander, played the harmonium. Hmm. But other than that, all the instruments were played Ridiculous. by... Get out of here, Sofiane Stevens. <laughs> <laughs> um, so Roy Wood was a member of of what I would call a second tier British group, The Move. And the reason I would call them second tier is they never really broke the States. Hmm. They played the States, but it was probably one of the most disorganized... Concert tours ever arranged where they had right. to drive themselves with a the U-Haul trailer oh. between zigzagging between cities and missing shows because they were too far apart for them to actually successfully drive oh, to shows. That. It was just an absolute mess. That's like, okay, when Duncan and I did our road trip, we did 
basically the like an, or almost an opposite route of one that him and his parents and his brother had done when he was younger. Yeah, yeah. But um, Duncan and I camped everywhere, and we only had one place booked, and it was an Airbnb. Yeah. Um, and we booked it like pretty like late in our trip because mm-hmm. we didn't know when we were gonna get there. Yeah. And we were like, we'll just make it work. Yeah. Um, but his mom had booked hotels for them every night, mm. but it's much. Like, they, they're much further apart in real life than they're on a map. Yeah, yeah. You know? So, it was basically, like, every morning they, like, got in a car and just drove to the next hotel. And they would just, like, drive past the sites. Like, there it is. It was Zoom. <laughs> <laughs> That's too bad. Oh, that just remind me of us. When we went, when you were kids, we went to Disneyland. Mm, yeah. And then we booked... A, a tour of, Sa- of of San Simeon, the Hearst Mansion. Mm, mm-hmm. And so we left Los Angeles in the morning. We left like nine in the morning. Yeah. And we were making like super great time. Yeah. So then your mom's like, well, we're making such a good time. Let's stop at Santa Monica and go to the famous pier. Right. So we're like, yeah, we can stop there. So we stop there for an hour. Yeah. And we go to the pier. We look around. And then we get in the car and we drive off. And then we hit Santa Barbara and hit the biggest traffic jam oh, of all time. Oh, no. <laughs> and by the time we got through Santa Barbara, we were already like two hours behind time then right. or I think it was at two and I think we we're like we still had like four hours to drive and we were yeah. like and I was driving all the way there at like a hundred miles an hour like <laughs> literally so crazily fast not a hundred miles an hour because yeah. like 60 is a but anyway I was driving yeah. like at 80 miles or 90 miles an hour right through these winding through the winding <laughs> valley towards San Simeon trying to get there in time and we yeah. didn't our tour is at two and we didn't get there till four <laughs> This is like I didn't kill us, just trying to get to the stupid thing yeah. on time. Then we got there, and and I was just like, well, they're not going to let us in because we're we're so late. Right. And it's when I'm in, so we have a, I booked a reservation early, you know, we had a reservation for earlier today, but we couldn't make it here in time. They're like, well, that's fine. Just get into this other tour. <laughs> I was like, oh, I drove like a maniac for, although even if I had driven, driven slower, we wouldn't even got there that day. So right. This is one of the things, yeah, I mean, it looked like a fine trip, right? Yeah. And you check all the maps and you look at everything. Yeah. Well, it's, there was it's, no Google map at that that's time. That's the thing, right? This is 2007. Yeah, like, we yeah. didn't, we, yeah, you, there's no way to know what the traffic is like. Yeah, and especially yeah. if you're not from the area, for you're sure. not like, oh, well, you know, we gotta, we can't, we gotta make sure we're accounting for that famous Santa Barbara traffic jam. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, we don't know. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And you're like, why does Santa Barbara have a big traffic day? Like, you never even heard of the town, yeah. practically. And then it killed us. You're like, some saint, whatever. <laughs> Some broad, I say, on International Women's Day. <laughs> Whoa, Mary. Uh, that's okay. I think I described someone later on as a. Uh, no, I described not in this one. Something else. I was, I was doing my my uh, some of my dark shadows, um, writing down the mm-hmm. plot points for for my for my dark shadows yeah. uh, thingy, and I, I wrote down floozy. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's a good word from a long time ago. <laughs> But anyhow, so let's talk a little bit about this, about the, the germination of boulders and, and okay. the song. Because Roy Wood, like I said, was a founding member of the Move. Mm-hmm. And so in 1970, Move members Wood, Roy Wood. Wood Jeff Lynne, mm-hmm. and drummer Bev Bevan formed the Electric Light Orchestra. And this was envisioned by Roy Wood as an extension of, of what he wanted to do is he wanted to combine symphonic music and rock music. And, you know, because he also played cello. And violin. He wasn't just a guitar player. He could also play piano, but drums, you mm-hmm. know, every other instrument you could think of. But also he could play like cello and he could also play like saxophone, trumpet. Like <laughs> there's nothing he couldn't like put his hand to in terms of music. And so originally, like, so when 
Carl Wayne left the move in, at the end of 1970 when they finished doing their album Shazam. Carl Wayne and Roy Wood had kind of reached loggerheads in term, terms of band direction. They didn't neither you know neither could agree on where they should go. Carl Wayne loved to tour the cabaret circuit of, of England. To Roy Wood, that just seemed like death as a band. So they just couldn't agree. And Carl Wayne was kind of a cabaret guy. He was a very if you listen to the album Shazam, he acts as kind of like the MC of the album, and he's like talking to people th- during songs, and it's just it's kind of crazy. And so so the idea was that the move was going to end in 1970, mm-hmm. and then because. Roy would convince Jeff Lynn to join the move. He'd asked him earlier, he asked him a couple, few years earlier, and Jeff Lynn didn't want to leave because he was in a group called the Idle Race. And they were doing all right. So he thought, well, no, I don't want to give up my chances with this band to join your band. I want to you know, be in my band, and maybe I'm going to make a thing of this. And so by, by, by 1970, he hadn't. And so Roy would ask him again. And, and so Jeff Lynn joined on the understanding that that was going to be the end of the move. And they were going to like, tra- they were going to like, become the electric like orchestra the move is going to become the le- electric like orchestra just because basically everyone was gone from the original move mm-hmm. and so but what happened was they still had a bunch of contractual obligations as the move so they continued on as the move and they made did some singles and they put, put out another album and then and then they stopped doing the move and they did the first two elo albums but the problem was like their first tour as elo it was just a kind of a disaster logistically because Roy Wood was singing, playing guitar, but also like running over and then playing the cello for some songs. And it was just like a real, and the, so the sound was affected. It was just like a bit of a nightmare. Mm-hmm. And so uh, Jeff Lynne wanted to bring in like a string section, and that's not what he, what Roy Wood wanted. Roy Wood wanted it to be like a self contained unit. Right. And they couldn't agree on this. And so then finally, Roy Wood left ELO. And then he started a different group called Wizard, which was kind of like, this, I think they had like seven members to Wizard, and they're like a big band, and they and it was kind of like a throwback to like a 1950s sound, but kind of like with Phil Spector's Wall of Sound included in that as well. And which is which is weird is that this band that was like a 50s throwback was really popular in the glam era, like super popular, and so so um so he was super busy with that. So this Boulders, this solo album, which he had started in 1969. Because he wanted a, it was like kind of like his um, a place to put songs that didn't work with the move, but also would allow him to like play his extensive collection of musical instruments. That's basically the idea of the album. And so when, um, so the idea was, you know, it's gonna be a fun project, blah blah blah. So so yeah, he um, yeah, so yeah, he played a total of nineteen instruments, and some of the weirder ones were well, cello, as I said, he played cello, yep. steel guitar, the cittern, which was a hmm. medieval instrument, kind of like yep. a lute, the bazooki. The Greek, the bazooka. Yes, he played a played a yeah. played a weapon in the studio, <laughs> as well as the rocket launcher. <laughs> of course, he played a uh, double bass, saxophone, and then brass, and then the bassoon on, mm. on it. Like plus all the regular guitars, yeah, and piano, and banjo, drums obviously, and... on this song. And... Yeah. Oh, did he play the banjo in the song? <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> I didn't notice there was banjo in the song. <laughs> well, I'll have to re-listen to it. I probably just didn't pick it up. Yeah. <laughs> So even he even drew the cover image on it. Oh really? So, yeah, wow! It was just like a all multi-talented. Yeah, he produced it, played on it, and everything else, right? So hmm. yeah, it's just one of those things. It was a good song though, a lot of fun. Hmm. He was. He really was the Sufjan Stevens of his day. He really was. The only thing about Roy Wood was that by the time you get to Wizard, he's already out of step with the musical tastes of the public, right? And it's just weird to me that that band was popular. Like I really like Wizard, but when yeah. I listen to them, 
I'm like, this this song was this band was popular with teenagers. Like it's inconceivable to me, right? That this like band like this sort of stomping saxophone based yeah fifties. You know, they have a whole album called Eddie and the Falcons, which is just like a pastiche of 50s rock and roll songs. Right. That was super popular in, hmm. in England of the early 1970s. Right. Why? Was it because they wore makeup on stage hmm. to look like other glam groups? Well, maybe what? it was one of those things where, like, people look back at okay. things that, like, things that were popular 20 years ago. Yeah. And are like, oh, that's actually pretty cool. Yeah. Like, how now everyone's, like, looking back at things that were popular in the 90s. And they're like, oh, like that fashion style was actually really cool. Yeah. So let's bring back all those like slip dresses and, you know, that kind of stuff. Sure. Everyone looks like they're, uh, all the teenagers on TikTok look like they're extras in Buffy, the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> so yeah, so, um, I, but, you know, like I say, he was, so that kind of lasted for a little while. Then by the time he started a group called the Wizzo Band, which was like a jazz rock combo. Well, then he was completely out of step with with whatever was happening, and then he never he never kind of regained that momentum as a as a popular artist. I mean, the weird thing about the move was that they started in 1965. By the time they did Shazam in 1969, that was only their second record they put out. Like, they were just like a singles act all all around. Like every like anything you any album they put out before that is uh, I think Looking On was their first record, and then but any, there might be another record in that point, but it was just like a compilation album. Of singles, and it wasn't like recorded as an album by them. Hmm. Anyway, let's go on to the next song. Enough about the move. Okay. Second tier. Um, this is Bull Moose Jackson. Okay. And Tiny Bradshaw's Orchestra mm-hmm. with a big 10 inch record. Okay. You ready for this song, Mayor? I guess so. Here we go, everyone. Got me the strangest woman. Believe me, this chick's no cinch. But I really get her going. When I take out my big 10-inch record of the band that plays the blues, the band that plays the blues, she just loves my big 10-inch record of her favorite blues. Tried to tease her, I gave her a little pinch. But she said, Now stop that jiving and get out that big 10 inch record of the band that played the blues. Well, the band that played the blues, she just loves my big 10 inch record of her favorite blues. I cover her with kisses when we're in a lover's clinch, and when she gets all excited. She begs for my big 10-inch record of the band that plays the blues. Well, the band that plays the blues. She just loves that big 10-inch record of her favorite blues. Don't go for smoking And liquor just makes her flinch See, she just goes for nothing Except my big 10-inch Record of the band that plays the blues Well, the band that plays the blues She just loves my big 10-inch Record of her favorite blues 
All right, and we're back. Mm-hmm. And Mary? Yes. Thoughts. This is a very silly song. <laughs> it's a pretty silly song. I don't know if you're aware. Yeah. I don't know if you listen to the lyrics, Dad. I did listen to the lyrics. But this song is quite silly. Yes. It's having a lot of fun mm-hmm. with some lyrics that probably weren't socially acceptable at the time. Probably not. Did not get any radio play. Not surprising at all. Very little jukebox action. Yep. Super popular live, though, these songs. Super right. popular live. I can see that. This band, would, when when he was playing these songs in the in the mid-50s, they did not finish a show without having played Big 10-inch record right. during the show. Uh, we can talk about that in a bit, but let's just talk a little bit about Bull Moose Jackson. Okay. Who started his life as Benjamin Clarence Jackson. What? He was... A- Bull Moose is not his given name. Bull <laughs> Moose was not his given name. I know that's a shocker, Mayor. It is. It's not on his birth certificate. <laughs> sorry, sorry to uh, sorry to do that, but yeah, he. Um, I do like the idea of looking at a baby and thinking, "Hmm, Bull Moose. <laughs> it's his name. <laughs> his name." Oh, I don't even know, like, why you look at another human being and think Bull Moose. But anyway, I don't know. He started off like I've met, as- I've met some Bull Moose-like people. Oh, okay, you know. Okay, interesting. Yeah. So he started off life as a violinist. Okay, but then. He moved to the saxophone. Mm-hmm. And so that was sort of his instrument of choice. He started a band in, when he was in high school still called the Harlem Hotshots. And then... It's a good name. He jo- he was recruited by this guy named Lucky Millinder, who was a band leader. And he recruited him as saxophone player for his band. And that's where he was given the name Bull Moose Jackson. One of the, the band members started calling him that because apparently he resembled a bull moose. Hmm. Yep. Or perhaps had the personality of one. <laughs> and then... What, shy and retiring? <laughs> and then also, um, he also, while well, he was with Lucky Millinder, he began singing because he had to stand in one night for this guy, a singer named Winoni Harris, a very popular singer of the time as well. And then at the urging of Millinder, Jackson signed with King Records as a rhythm and blues singer. It's pretty nice of Millinder just to like, help him with his career. So his song, I Love You, Yes I Do, was the first R&B single to sell a million copies, even crossing over to the pop charts, which I think it reached uh, around number 24 at the time, which is pretty good. Top 40 hit. Yeah, definitely. Now, like other jump blues acts of the time, Jackson played risque material, uh, like as you heard in the song, using double entendre and innuendo for effect, like Big Ten Inch Record, which was written by a guy named Fred Weismantle, or Lieber and Stoller's Nosy Joe, another song, another song that he had as a single that he you know didn't sell very well, but you know always was a big hit. And I think... This is my feeling about these songs, Mary, because you might think they're silly. Yep. But I actually think they're really liberating for, oh, yeah, for black people absolutely. at the time. Definitely. Like, I think they celebrated, like, for one thing, they celebrated, like, the stereotypes of black people at the time. Mm-hmm. They were, like, making a joke on that yep, in the song. Yep, for sure. And I think, you know, like, when you think about black people at the time, like, it's hard for us to even ima- imagine nowadays when I know that black people still suffer, like, racism and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But nothing like they did at that time where it was not just racism, but it was completely... It was like a completely, for men, it was a uh, emasculating racism that yep. took away your identity as a man. Mm-hmm. You were called boy, mm-hmm. you know? And so songs that asserted manhood, like Big Ten Inch Record, but yeah. in a humorous way, were of course like something that everyone could whoop it up to, mm-hmm. you know? And yeah, it's like it's like re- you're reclaiming yeah. something, right? Like you're reclaiming like your masculinity and your sexuality and yeah, yeah. you're like allowing yourself to be something that you are not allowed to be. Sure, right? sure. And so 
Yeah, and that's the other thing too, right? Like, so here you have this repressive fifties, and I mean, there were it was repressive to white people too. There were white people who were acting out in their own way as well. Mm-hmm. You know, like, comedians like Lenny Bruce and Mort Saul and stuff like that were were acting out in a different way. Yeah, still crudely. Mm-hmm. You know, Mort Saul less than Lenny Bruce. Lenny Bruce, of course, very crudely. Yeah, you know, to the point where he's getting arrested for for obscenity. Yeah, you know, but it was a way to kick against the repressions of, of this, you know, the the kind of ruling class yeah. that was crushing everything and made mm-hmm. everything feel so so bland and, and the yeah. same. And so, you know, and so you had like one group of people who were called boy, who were still servants, mm-hmm. still working jobs as servants. Yeah. You know? And like, did not have the opportunity to be more than that. Exactly. Systemically, yeah. right? Yeah. Like the whole, all of society is built around keeping them yeah. in that situation, right? Yeah. Like yeah. from, from birth, yeah. you yeah. are kept down, right? Like yeah. at every level, education, job opportunities, like everything. Sure, sure. Yeah. So, you know, so I think it's like, I kind of wonder what you think about this song. Because I thought maybe you just think it was kind of rude and, and kind of dumb, mm-hmm. you know, whereas I think, although I do think it's, I don't think it's dumb. I think it's, funny and silly yeah. but i think but i also think that it was incredibly liberating for that mm-hmm. time like like so many songs from that time period you know like and even songs that were like like bill haley did shake rattle and roll yeah but his version doesn't say like a one-eyed cat going in the seafood store right which is like right on like sexual yes. innuendo yeah that was left out of the bill haley version right right they they, they took that out of there you know whereas the song you know as performed by the original artist is incredibly you know, it's just part of the Sexual. fun of it. Yeah, yeah, this idea of sexuality and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And not just for men, but for women too. Yeah. Well, you know? I mean, so work with me, one, one thing that is like at the core of bubblegum pop is that like uh, allusions to sex and sexuality, yeah, right? Yeah, like yeah. so many of that's like a whole, that's like a part of the identifier of that type of music. Yeah. yeah. Right. Is like having these, yeah, allusions to sex and sexuality, but especially directed towards their audience, which was girls. Yeah. 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 No, yeah. exactly. So, yeah. So there's a song called The Walkin' Blues, which I really like a lot. And it's, it, it was, it, uh, its chorus is walk right in, walk right out, walk right in, a walk right out. And then they'll be like, so the lyrics are, well, my baby keeps on walking. Well, I met this gal. She wanted to read my, she wanted to ride my, in my truck. Well, she had no wheels, wanted to ride in my truck. Man, she dumped in the cab. All she wanted to do is, Walk right in, walk right out. There's stuff like yeah. that, right? So it leads well, you to a point yeah, where you think, yeah, oh, absolutely. I know where this is going. And then they'll, yeah. they'll, they'll, uh, they'll cut. They swerve. Kind of, they swerve. But they even had like other kind of crude songs. Like, it, yeah. it ain't the meat, it's the motion. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and I mean, man, like, it, all these it was an were... extremely puritanical time for everyone, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, even today, a lot of people struggle with expressing their sexuality sure, because sure. of how deeply rooted, um, like, especially like, British North America is in like Puritanism, Puritanism right? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that, the whole basis of especially America. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, like well, that's something that I talk about with people sometimes because, like, there's this idea of like like men are jerks, especially like an older media, hmm. like the the insistent boyfriend, you know, the, mm-hmm. or the guy who wants to go with a girl and keeps asking her to go out and stuff yeah. like that. And people are like, oh man, he's just like nagging her to go out, you know, mm-hmm. and he won't leave her alone. And you're like. That's how you had to do it because women weren't allowed to say yes. Hmm. They had to say no. I yeah. If they said yes, that meant that they were not pure, that they were somehow, they were floozies, they yeah. were tramps. Well, yeah, it's they like were, setting, you know, yeah. it's like a society that's setting everyone up for failure, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because like, you're not allowed 
to say yes mm -hmm. because a yes is construed as you're a bad person, yeah. but you're also not allowed to say no because a no is not going to be respected, right? And for like everyone, like people on both sides of that, yeah. you can't actually have any sort of open, honest communication no. because there's so many layers of um, protocol, yeah, right? Yeah. 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 And fake protocol and, yeah. and stuff where the girl has to say no you mm -hmm. know, to the boys. Hey, you want to go out one night? No. Yeah. Well, you know, when I was a boy, when I was a teenager, you mm -hmm. know, I took I took no as an answer. Yeah. You know, I, that was it for me. Like, if yeah. girl said no, I was like, all right, farewell. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, well, yeah, and it's like, how are you supposed to know a real no from a fake no? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And how are you supposed to express a real no versus a fake no? Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, and yeah. like, how, yeah, how do you tell the difference between those two things? Sure, sure. Um, and how do you express like, no, when I say no, I actually mean no. Mm -hmm. And like, and also people, we are moving to a time where people can say yes now yeah right like you don't need to keep doing that but it's hard for people to get out of that mindset right oh, i remember in elementary school boys like literally attacking girls they liked mm -hmm. literally attacking them they would like they would be like and the boys would be attacked too like the yeah. boys would be like the, the girls would scratch them back mm -hmm. and it was just like it's like oh my god all the sublimated desires yeah, totally. like, so unhealthy yeah <laughs> yeah oh, and i think back to it is oh boy mm -hmm. not good not good everyone no it's one of my favorite stories, and I'm going to tell it again. I've said it many times, so I'm going to yeah. say it again, which is the French translator of Harry Potter talking about translating and said the most difficult part of it wasn't translating like the spells right. and all the names. Well, it's like all that. nonsense. Yeah. It was <laughs> having to convey to French children the idea of boys not liking girls mm. as being a thing that you did, like that you right. were embarrassed to talk to girls yeah. and you're all like... You're like, ew, Ooh, girls, girls have cooties. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That doesn't exist in French culture. Yeah. So you, how do you explain that to mm -hmm. them? That, oh, in, in this place, boys have to pretend they don't like girls and girls have to pretend they don't like boys. Yeah. And this is how it works, you know? Mm -hmm. And if mm -hmm. there are girls and boys that don't like girls and boys, yeah. no one understands that either because no yeah. one's honest about any of their feelings. Yeah, exactly. So it's a big mess. Yeah. And girls are like, oh, yeah, no, yeah, boys. Why? I agree. And then it's like, oh, no, no, not seriously. Oh, well, I was serious. You're not. I, oh, oh, okay. Never, yeah, that's. Never mind. All right. Well. <laughs> I outed myself. Forget, this would be awkward. This would be real awkward. Yeah. All right. Yeah. I don't know. I find that really a fast. I find that fascinating about that time period, and I, I do like kind of. I do kind of like to mine it. And we'll talk about it in a little bit again uh, with another song that we're going to hear later in the show. Hmm. But let's go on to better times, Mary. Okay. Let's travel to 2086, a time what? which apparently is a lot better. Oh, 2086. 2086 yes. is yep. a lot better. Although, also, many people died on the way to get to 2086. That, I mean, I think it's too bad for them. I think a lot of people die on the way to get to any I mean, year. I mean that they suffered and died on the way to twenty eighty six. Oh, okay, yeah. There was a lot of people who fell to the, the wayside as we as we progress as a humanity. Mm -hmm. A lot of people suffered and fell to the side. Yes. But thank goodness we're now in twenty eighty six where everything's great. And let's let bittersweet. Okay. Tell us about it. All right. Let's hear it. Surprise! 
Was 2086. We made it, Mary. We made it. What did you think of that song? Um, I well, what did I think of that song? Let me see. <laughs> I thought it was fun. Oh, good, good. I liked it. I like the uh, I like the goofy synthesizer at the beginning. Mm. It's sort of it's somehow indicating that that's the future, which is great. The synthesizer was the, of course the future. Of oh, music, of course, as we all know. Uh, well, guitars would disappear, but also we, you read the lyrics while we were uh, yes. On, on break listening to the song in between kind of, between thingies and actually the quite touching I thought the lyrics were yeah I would I actually I probably would have to take it out of novelty song based on the lyrics hmm. but I still like it I still you know it is it is sort of novelty I just like the idea of it being 2086 and, yeah and kind of you know telling about you know how 2021 they bad, buried war they buried war in 1954 or no, sorry in 2054 we all turned on to love yeah yeah and and also in 1983, uh, they banished Sad. <laughs> they didn't. We couldn't do it, folks. We tried. Yeah. 1983, we tried to banish Sad, but it turns out human emotions shouldn't be tampered with. Yes. So, uh, also, I think 1983 was probably a pretty sad time for a lot of people. Why? Wasn't AIDS a big thing at that time? Or am I too early? No, I guess you're right. AIDS was coming around. Yeah, mm-hmm. I guess during Reagan, the Reagan years, AIDS yeah. would have been... No, AIDS would, would have been full on at that point, if you're going to think about it. AIDS... Nuclear nuclear uh, war. Yeah. Those are things we thought of at the time, I guess. Mm-hmm. But also we relaxed and we went to Hollywood. Just stuff like that. Yep. You, kinda, know. you know. Yep. It's not all gloom and doom. I guess not. It's also p- pleasure dome. Right. Yeah. Gl- pleasure dome and gloom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so. Glam rock, right? The 80s? No, glam rock was the 70s thing. Oh. What was the 80s thing? 
Oh, synth? Synth rock, yeah. Oh, new wave. Oh, these r- are new all romantic. sad things. <laughs> <laughs> yep, you said it. Burn. Burn the 80s. Burn that decade. <laughs> <laughs> burn it to the ground. I would gladly burn it to the ground. Oh, I should say that. I, there's a, quite a bit of music I like from that time period. So, Mare. Yes. This studio project mm-hmm. was directed, produced, arranged, and mostly written by this guy named Steve Duboff. Okay. Which makes it sound like it was a studio project, but it actually was a real band. Okay. Bittersweet was a group from Long Island, originally called the Satisfactions. Hmm. But I guess they changed their name when the garage days were over and or were coming to an end. Although, as Bittersweet, they were signed to MGM briefly. And in 1967, they put out a garage rocker called Out of Sight, Out of Mind that would appear in a low-budget biker flick called Blonde on a Bum Trip. Hmm. Blonde on a Bum Trip. Interesting. Yep. So they appear in that movie. Uh, there's actually a clip of it on YouTube, but it's so, like, so cheaply done. The movie's so cheaply done. Right. That they couldn't actually afford to, like, like match the band playing to the to the music track. Oh, weird. So it's just, like, all these weird cuts and stuff like right. that. Right. Like, band playing in. But it's nothing, nothing isn't lined up or anything. Hmm. So it's, and it's, it's kind of weird. Sorry, a motorcycle movie? Yeah, yeah. Like biker, a, a biker flip. Like Easy Rider? Easy Rider would be the the smart extenuation of like like born to the what are they called the born, the born to be losers wild. born losers and there was a bunch of like exploitation biker flicks that came right. out in the mid the mid bike exploitation bike exploitation bike exploitation movies that's right that's that's where like Bruce Stern got a start Peter oh, okay. Fonda got a start hmm. Jack ne- Jack Nicholson got a start as as actors acting in that kind of like garbage movies for AI for American International right pictures. interesting and. Yeah, but, then, you, um, but Easy Rider is sort of like the smart, uh, conti- you know, like the kind of taking that idea of those movies and, and then oh, and like bringing it like mainstream or whatever. No, making well, making it underground, making oh, it making it underground. Oh, okay, right, right. Yeah. I guess that's true. Yeah. yeah, I guess it's like an anti-war movie, right? It's, or anti-Vietnam movie. At least. I don't even know what it's about. It's about two two guys who have drugs in their motorcycles and they're trying to get to somewhere to sell them or something's going on and mm-hmm. and they uh, meet people on the way there and then then. Oh, I don't want to spoil it if you haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Then I don't, don't think let I will. me spoil it for you. I doubt I will. You know what? The only thing I know about Easy Rider is that there's a second one, but it was like one of those. It's one of those sequels where it was like someone really wanted to make a sequel and like bought the rights to make a sequel for cheap, and then made it, and it's like not at all like the first one, and mm. it kind of goes against the whole message of the first one. <laughs> That's right. And it's know. like very like pro war. Huh. I've seen the first one. It's it's worth watching. It definitely was a watershed moment in American movies because yeah. it definitely led to the 70s as what the 70s were, which right. was a time of, of incredible experimentation and like hmm. openness to, to all kinds of different movies. Right. You know, sort of unlike nowadays where there's not as much openness among studios to, to different sort of movies. Hmm. Everyone everyone wants to have their tent poles and their, their uh, franchises. Their franchises, yeah. 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 Everyone's got to have their Fast and Furiouses or... <laughs> Their they're Marvels, Mission, Mission, their Mission Impossibles, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. yeah. there's Xander Cages. I don't know if that's. A, <laughs> it's not. <laughs> I don't know if that's a thing, but yeah. Well, it's not. They like tried. A, they tried. Yeah, they tried. Vin Diesel was like, "Yeah, I want to lead my own. Coming, coming hot off Fast and Furious. I can do this. No, you can't. Sorry, sorry, Vin. You don't have the chops. Nope, he does not have the chops. Or the choppers to bring it back to motorcycles. Anyway, continue. Or with the your... chompers to bring it back to teeth. <laughs> yep. Call back to something we were not talking about, <laughs> but something we all have. So that's it. There we go. That's it. Yep. So yeah, the Bittersweet were a real band, but Duboff 
at that time was working as a staff writer for ABC, a staff producer for ABC Records. But he also had written songs for Ringo Starr, The Cowsills, The Monkees, a bunch of other people. Uh, he produced The Insect Trust, which we played in another show of uh, this of listening party. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, so the band signed to, after they were with MGM, they signed to ABC. They put out an album called Hypnototic One. Hypnototic? Is that what I just said? Yep. That's not even a word, everyone. That's, nope. not, that's not a word. Scratch that from your memory b- files and put this in, in its place. Hypnotic One. That's what the album was called. Hypnotic One. And Are you oh. sure it's not hypnototic? Yeah. Okay. And this song was written... Maybe you're thinking of Hypnotoad. Maybe I was. Hypnototic. <laughs> uh, this song was written by Duboff and this guy named Artie Kornfeld, which is like the worst name in rock music, I think. Yes. But Kornfeld... Despite having both feet planted firmly in the pop scene, worked with Michael Lang to bring about the East Coast answer to Monterey. Do you know what the East Coast answer to Monterey, the Monterey Pop Festival, was, Mary? Um, no. Starts with a W. Uh, no. Woodstock. Woodstock, of course. Yes. Was, I know Woodstock. It's right on the tip of my tongue. Woodstock seems to have like more like have a hip cachet than, than Monterey does. Yeah. But it seriously was just an attempt to answer Monterey hmm. on the East Coast. You know what? And Dad? Woodstock was supposed to be free. I mean, not supposed to be free. It was supposed to. It was a paid concert. Like you paid to get into it. Right. The only reason it became free is because a bunch of we talked about them. Yes. Up against the wall, mother effers came out and they tore down the fences mm-hmm. to make it into a free concert. Mm-hmm. Um. Oh, I thought Woodstock was on the West Coast. No, it wasn't. It was an. East I just Coast assumed thing. it was because it was in New York State. In rural New York State. It wasn't in Woodstock, which is an actual town in, in New right. York State. It was in a town called Bethel. Because Woodstock... They wanted, to do, like, no. they wanted to do Woodstock, and that's because that's where Bob Dylan lived. Oh, okay. And I think they thought if they did it there, they would lure him onto state. On, right. Because he hadn't been anywhere for a long time. Right. And the town of Woodstock was like, no. Mm, yeah, they went, um, no. <laughs> but then Bethel said, well, I'm not sure. But then this guy named Max Yasger, who was a, far- a dairy farmer, he said, sure, you can use my field for it. Hmm. And they did. Okay. And he said, they said, we're only going to have like 50,000 people there. And then 500,000 people showed up. 50,000 people is still a lot of people that have in a field. It is a lot yeah. of people that have in a field. It is a lot of people. I would be like, um, no. <laughs> <laughs> Change my mind. Psych. <laughs> They're like, oh, it's not going to be, it's only going to be like 50,000. 50,000? My, my cows are really nervous about this. I can't. They've been talking to me, and they're just like, I don't know that many people yeah, hanging around. I don't want people coming here and tipping us over. That's what they said. <laughs> What's wrong with tips? <laughs> the problem is, you give it to the cow, and then it just eats it. <laughs> and true. then it throws it up, and then it eats it again, because it's a cow. <laughs> it's a cow. It doesn't throw it up. It just goes through all four of its stomachs, and it comes out. No, I think that it has to, like... Doesn't it, like, chew it, and then it, like, like brings it up, and then it chews it again or something? So it doesn't have to, like, chew it twice? Is that what it does? Is that? Uh, I don't know. I thought it I just did. Thought it, I just took it out of four stomachs. It just moves from stomach to stomach until it's settled down. Well, because isn't chewing cud? I think cud is different than, than the food. But isn't cud like the like when they chew it and then it gets partially digested? No, you're just getting gross. It? You're just getting gross. Yes. Cud is a bubblegum type substance that cows like to chew. Oh. And blow bubbles. Okay. I didn't know that. Well, all right. What do you know? What do you, you learn new things every day. You do. You learn new things every day and also untrue things every day. I tried asking a resident that the other day. What? Because he 
never has anything interesting to say. Okay. And so I said, did you learn anything new today? He was like, no. What was I supposed to learn? (laughs) I don't know. I was just trying to make conversation. Because every day I say, how are you doing? And you say, terrible. So I was trying to not ask you how you were doing. Because you always say terrible. And I always say, I'm sorry to hear that. And it's not a great way to start a conversation. Is that what he says, terrible? Yes. Every time. No likey. I know. Me neither. What am I supposed to say to that? That's not good. No. All right. Mayor? Yes? On that happy note, mm. Mrs. Bring Down. <laughs> Let's move on to our next song. <laughs> this novelty. This, this gut buster of a novelty. I'm just trying, to, just trying to make sure that we're, we don't get too happy over here. I'm trying to even it out, you know? You sure are. We, we, got, we got the highs of listening yeah. to the fun songs, then we got the lows of me breaking <laughs> us down. <laughs> sure. All right. Let's move to another song. This is, uh, this is Biff Rose, and the song is Evolution from his album Children of Light that came out in 1969. Moving up here, everyone. I think it was the first song that wasn't. Oh no, sixty-eight was the last one. Anyway, let's let's listen to Bifros. Here we go. Okay. Well, I've heard it shouted and I've heard it preached. Such a great state of evolution man has reached. Oh, I believe that it's so. Appendix helped to answer the question of many a caveman's indigestion. <laughs> I believe that it's so. The bushman walking in the tall, tall grass, he really needed his pancreas. Whoa. Don't you know what he went through when his pancreas days was through? Evolution. Baby, when you set me on fire But now I've evolved a little higher than you So our fire days all through It's time to put you on the shelf I'm evolving higher than myself la, 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 la. I read some mystical books today
Your thoughts on Bifros? Um, I didn't like the singing. Okay. But I thought it was a fun song. Yeah. I liked the piano. Yeah. Yep. Yes, he plays. He was from New Orleans. He really liked that New Orleans. New Orleans. New Orleans. New Orleans. And he liked to play that New Orleans piano, Mary. Hmm. He liked it a lot. Yeah, yeah, he liked to play that rolling piano style of that time period, which is so great. Yes, I agree. It is so great. And you don't like his voice, though, hey? No. I don't think it's like the strongest instrument in the world, but I don't mind it for what it, what he's using it for. I think it's I think it's fine. And I like when he goes into this crazy falsetto <laughs> for no particular reason. I don't reason. like that. Oh, you didn't like that? No. Oh, I like that a lot. That's why this song is on this mixtape. Hmm. Because it's a novelty song. Hmm. About a person who is growing beyond everyone. Right. Becoming a living god, apparently. Hmm. Think rather highly of themselves. That's hmm. evolution, Mary. Yep. Yeah, it's fun. It's fun. So yeah, he was born in New Orleans, but he moved to California when he was old, when he became a little older, and he became a comedy sketch writer there. Wrote, oh, cool. Wrote for comedy shows. And then he started to write songs, and people were like, hey, you should record these songs. You're, they're really fun. And so he did two albums for, for Tetragrammaton Records, which was Bill Cosby's record label. One of his, He was a co-owner of, of this record label. And so, yeah, so Biff uh, Rose did two albums, including this album for Tetragrammaton. And then, uh, and then he moved the whole kitten caboodle to Buddha Records for his next album, which was called Biff Rose, which is a pretty good album, too. I don't think it's quite as strong as the first two. And then uh, then he went kind of cuckoo. Oh, really? And nowadays, it's the person that you would want to know, is my, my view of him mm. as a person. But I think for the time, I think it's pretty good. And I thought the song had featured Van Dyke Parks playing Moog Synthesizer, so I was pretty excited by that. But it doesn't. He does play a, he does play Moog on a different song on the record. On this song, it's played by a guy named by Nick Woods, was, a, was the guy's name. But i got to say, it's the most tentative Moog playing I've ever heard in my life. Uh, but he was a member of the New Christie Minstrels, along with the fellow co- producer of the album, Art Podell. And I guess they were—they really liked what Biff Rose was doing. And you know what's interesting, Mary, is mm-hmm. that you know who really liked Biff Rose a lot? Who? David Bowie. Oh, really? He covered Fill Your Heart, which was a song from Biff Rose's first album, a song he co-wrote with Paul Williams. Mm-hmm. And I would say that if you listen to like a Biff Rose album, you can hear a lot. You can hear a lot of what Biff Rose did in Hunky Dory, like the the piano sounds and stuff like that. that oh, okay. That Rick Wakeman was playing when he did that album with. Hmm. Yeah, I think they're very, very close in, in sound. But anyway. Okay. You know what, Mary? We're going to listen to a song, and then you know what we're going to get after that? Mary, you know what we're going to get after that? What? A little mini documentary. Oh, great. Because I like to do those. That's good. I was looking for uh, time to take a little quick little nap. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> All right, everyone. I know you're excited by that idea. So let's let's first listen to Sagittarius okay. with Hotel Indiscreet, and then we'll be right back. This comes from their... This is a single... So it was on their album Present Tense in 1968, but it really wasn't. This is a single version. This song did not exist in this form other than on the single. So let's give a listen to the single released on Columbia Records in 1967, backed with a song called Virgo. Right, everyone? Here we go, 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 go! Where does everybody go to look down the hill? No one will care or mind. Live the life of someone else that they like to be. Change their identity.
children. How long will we be made to suffer the utter degradation of everything we hold sacred? My fellow fly, the time is upon us to open the doors and purify the foul and <laughs> pestilent air within, standing naked before the eternal judge and proclaiming we are all hip to three four hip two three four hip two three four links All right, and we're back. And Mary, what did you think of uh, Hotel Indiscreet? Uh, I like it. That's good. Yeah, uh, it's a fun song. I yeah. like the music. The lyrics yeah. are funny. Yeah, I think it has everything a good novelty song should have. Yes, and I often get I often get to perform the uh, the spoken part uh, during a David M show. Mm. It's quite fun to do the uh, do the Zeke Heil in a crowded <laughs> crowded uh, club. <laughs> it makes you feel good. Yeah, but that's you know obviously uh, speaking of satire, the idea of making fun of the I mean that what they were doing they were making fun of the kind of lockstep. Uh, unforgiving element of hippieism of that of that mm. time where what what I, what I what I as a teenager called hippie fascism <laughs> which is the idea that you know uh we're right and just get over it mm. get over yourself yeah but, you know and you're, you're just like well you're not no one's right about everything so yeah. uh you get over yourself what's the song called again sorry hotel indiscreet mm. yeah so uh gary usher was sagittarius uh he he was a neighbor of brian wilson in hawthorne california oh really yeah and so he wrote a lot of early songs with Brian Wilson, most famously in in my room, but a lot of other songs as well. Until he was forced out by the Wilson's manager Murray Wilson, their dad, who was uh, jealous of Usher's uh, friendship with Wilson and the amount of and the fact that he was writing songs with him, and also the fact that he uh, he didn't appreciate Usher's sass. <laughs> like Usher didn't take any BS from Wilson because he wasn't his dad or his uncle, the way Mike Love, you know, for Mike Love. You know, all those kids were all kind of scared of, intimidated by right. Murray, whereas Gary Usher wasn't. You know, he just was some one of his friends' dads, and yeah, and a bit of a joke to him. So yeah, he, you know, so yeah, there's definitely definitely a a difference in situations there, <laughs> yeah, right? For where sure. yeah, 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 where what you know, when persons uh, you know, be- beat his children, all the children are going to be yeah, like very- if yeah, if you if you've <laughs> raised your child to be afraid of you, yeah. then they will be afraid of you. Yeah. But you didn't raise your neighbor to be afraid of you. <laughs> they don't care. Yeah, exactly. Like what what are they like okay, let's walk away from you, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. So I sure went on to play, write and produce for surf groups and hot hot rod groups of the time. Mm-hmm. Those are the the uh, predominant musical trends of the early 60s. You know, that's where the Beach Boys were writing the surf songs. And of course, I think Brian Wilson was probably the first to realize that writing surf music was a dead end. And so he decided to incorporate another very popular trend in teen culture of, of Southern California, which was people's cars. Boys had their cars and they had their hot rods and they would customize them and all the rest of it. And so that became very popular. And so 
Usher would either record with actual groups, like say the Surfaris or Dick Dale and the Deltones. I'm sorry, did you say the Surfaris? The Surfaris, that's right. Mm. Mm. They did Wipeout. Okay. And then, but he also created these. Wait, fi- what's Wipeout? Oh, okay, okay, that's what I thought it was. Yeah. And so then, but he also created fictitious groups. They didn't exist, like the Superstocks, right? The Hondells, the Four Speeds, the Sunsets, the Competitors. Jeez, just using up all the good, the good Go-Go's, band names, the huh? Go-Go's. That got re- reborn later on. Mm. The, the Devons, mm-hmm. the Ghouls, which was a Halloween-inspired song. Nice. Uh, the Indigos, the Revels, which is mm-hmm. a great name because Revel was a, a, a model. Candy? No, they're a model car kit company. Oh. So they you could buy your Revel models of. Not just cars, but anything. But right. Planes. Planes. All trains. Stuff, yeah. Automobiles. Man, I destroyed many models when I was a kid with badly placed glue. <laughs> uh, the kickstands. I feel like I would be into making models. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. maybe. The knights. And then best, best name of all, Gary Usher and the Usherettes. Oh, yeah. Who were actually good. the honeys. The honeys, of course, were um, made up of, well, Brian Wilson's wife, Marilyn Wilson, was a honey, as well as her sister, Diane uh, Diane Roville with her was her actual last name, but uh, yeah. So they, uh, so you know, he kind of had kind of fun like that. So of course the Hondells had a big hit with the Beach Boys song "Little Honda," which Gary Esther said that's a great song. I'm going to take that song from the Beach Boys and I'm going to put it out as the as the Hondells. So he did, but with a band called the Devons, he did a song called "Honda Bike," which I really like as well because it's just like such a silly like continuation of this weird honda exploitation but honda <laughs> honda motorbikes are super popular with with the surfing crowd oh really because they're just like small and, and easy ways to get around right that makes sense yeah yeah so let's give a listen to the devons uh this was a made-up group of course they didn't really exist the devons uh with their song honda bike it was a deca single that came out in 1965 everyone here we go Got a new two-wheeler, really something to see With a groovy buddy seat so you can ride along with me Well, it's Saturday morning, gonna ride on my Honda Bike Now the gang will be there, what a gas it'll be I'll be leading the pack and you'll be riding with me You'll have the ride of your life The Devons, better known as the Castells, who are a vocal group that uh, Gary Usher produced, and he used that uh, he used that music, or used them to create, you know, because basically, Mar- Mar- it was just 
it was just make money. That was the whole thing, right? Take the money and run style right. playing. You just like you just found a trend, you exploited it till you like bled it dry, and then you moved on to something else. And so then when when the surf scene and the hot rod scene died down, Gary Usher became a staff producer at Columbia Records. And there was basically just three hip producers at Columbia at this time in the in L.A. And that was him, Gary Usher, mm-hmm. Larry Marks, who would go on to A&M to produce Phil Oaks and people like that. And then Terry Melcher, who, of course, worked with the birds. And and Melcher was also a surf surfing dude as well. He came right. out of the surf scene as well. So uh, he worked – so Gusher – sorry, Gusher. Usher also worked with the birds. Uh, he worked with Keith Ellison, The Peanut Butter Conspiracy, Gene Clark, and Chad and Jeremy. The Peanut Butter Conspiracy? Yeah. It's, it's a funny name. Yeah. And so it was actually Chad and Jeremy that he offered this song he'd found as a demo called My World Fell Down. And I don't know if you talked about this song before, but we'll talk about it a bit, a bit again if, in case we didn't. So he offered it to Chad and Jeremy because he thought it was really good. But Chad and Jeremy wanted to record their own songs. They didn't want to record a cover. And so they said, you know, we'll do it, but we won't be very happy to do it. And so Usher right. was like, well, you ungrateful jerks. I'm going to show you how great this song is. I'm going to make a hit song out of it. So he, 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 you know, gathered a bunch of his session musician friends together. Yep. He uh, got Glenn Campbell to sing lead vocals. He got brand new Beach Boy Bruce Johnston to, to uh, sing vocals on it, as well as Terry Melcher. And Johnson and Melcher knew each other very well because they had played in the, in the surf era. They were right. They, performed as Bruce and Terry and did a lot of like hit songs at that time as well. Hmm. And so, um, so yeah, so he did this single version with, uh, like I say, Glenn Campbell and, and who also played guitar on it, but you know, a bunch of, a bunch of, yeah, a bunch of hot stars at a, the time, a bunch of hot session guys, <laughs> you know, Glenn Campbell wasn't known at that time. Right. He was just a session guy, but pretty soon after that, he would become very well known because of, uh, a little song they like to call by the time I get to Phoenix. But, they they like to call or he like to call it. Is that the name of it? That's the name of it. Oh, okay. That's why people like to call it that. Right. Otherwise, people wouldn't know they're talking about. Makes sense. You know, you wouldn't say by the time <clears throat> by the time my bunny gets a ribbon. Mm. People are like people are like bunny gets a, what song is that? Right. You know the song where the the guy wakes up where you know he leaves a note for his girlfriend mm-hmm. and you know by the time he gets to Phoenix she'll be rising and she'll right. be going through her day and yeah. she doesn't realize that he's he's yeah. left her. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. You know mm-hmm. that song bunny gets a ribbon. Anyhow, um. The single version also featured a music concrete section in it of a series of sound effects that he added to the song. Uh, probably, I feel, not not totally certain of this, but probably put together by Usher's newest signees, the Firesign Theater. Oh, okay. So he would got them to do that. Um, and so Usher... Pe- that's peak novelty song. Yeah. A bunch of sound effects. <laughs> so then Usher didn't have a name for this group, so he called it Sagittarius. After his astrological sign. Hmm. And so I'm going to play My World Fell Down now. Okay. Yeah. Quickly. Sure. If you're going to name a band after an astrological sign, yep. which one would it be? If you're going to name a band after an astrological yeah. sign? Would it be your own or would it be a different one? If I was going to? Yeah. I would name it after a different one. Which one? Gemini. Why? I like the name. Of, I like the pronunciation of Gemini. Yeah. I wouldn't use mine. I don't know which one I would use. I think Aquarius is cool. Kind of too close to this is the dawning of the age. That's of a good Aquarius. point. But let's listen to My World Fell Down, Mary. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah. by the way, everyone, we're doing a mini documentary about Gary Usher. Yeah, we know. We're we're in it. We're in it, and because uh, I really like Gary Usher, so uh, and I think he's kind of undersung nowadays, not really appreciated for what he, the innovations he brought and the things that he did. So let's let's give a listen to My World Fell Down by Sagittarius. This came out on a single in 1967. 
The back backing track, Mary, you know what was backing track was called? Libra. I think there's a trend going on here. Hotel Indiscreet was Virgo. This one is Libra. Let's give a listen to My World Fell Down. Okay. Just like a breath of spring You came my way I heard a bluebird sing But not today Uh, 
that was uh, Sagittarius with My World Fell Down. What do you think of that? What do you think of this? Kind of a weird uh, thing with the, with the... In the middle with the... the sound effects. The sound effects. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it is weird. It is weird. It kind of... And it's strange that... Well, I mean, that's the 60s, right? Yeah. kind of takes me... kind of took me out of the song. Okay. You yeah. know? Yeah. Because, like, it's not like the song continues in the background mm-hmm. while the sound effects yeah, are yeah, happening. Yeah, no, just... It's like the song is, like, done. <laughs> sound effects. I looked over. I'm, like, halfway through? Yeah, yeah. That's so weird. Like... Yeah. It's not like in like Cornelius's "Thank You for the Music," yeah. where it's like the song ends and then you got like sound effects at the end or sure, whatever. Yeah, like yeah. there are songs that do that, it right? Kind of like plays have, out. yeah, 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 yeah. You play it with sound effects, but this one is just like song stop, <laughs> like end song, yeah, yeah. sound effects, song starts up again. Like mm-hmm. it's just kind of like I think that if they had like the song going in the background or something, that would have been better. Yeah, but, yeah. But yeah, the song itself is really good. Yeah, it's yeah. a lot of fun. Yeah, the the album version cuts out the music concrete section because the label president Clive Davis hated it and was actually really mad at Gary Usher for putting it in the song, and he felt like it hurt its sales. Oh, really? I think Usher's viewpoint was, you know, if you can't explore or try new things, then what's the point of doing what we're doing? You know? Yep, like, totally. You know, like, you know, he, he even said later on, he said, you know, I probably would have, it probably would have sold sold better. If I had done that, and maybe it was wrong that I did put that music concrete part into it, but you know, he felt like you had to try and do something. And different. I mean, everyone likes different things yeah. in art, yeah, right? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. just because one person doesn't like something doesn't mean it's bad. Yeah, it just means that that person doesn't like it, and there probably is someone else out there who also likes it, sure. right? And the Ivy League version, the British, which was who was a British group led by a guy named John Carter like, of Mars. Yeah, that version also kind of break stops in the middle of the song and has like a, a baroque violin break in it hmm. you know and so both songs have like a breakdown between the two halves of the, of the right. song with an unrelated section and i'm not too sure which is better i think both of them kind of you know and i think if you maybe if what usher's doing is kind of creating like a thematic series of sound effects it's not just like it i think he wanted it to have like a meaning to it right you know so i think that's interesting What's curious is he signed the Firesign Theater around this time in 1967. They did a, the first album he produced, their first album, Waiting for the Electrician or Someone Like Him, which is a really great comedy record, but really deep, really dense and detailed. And, and of course he, he uses them at Hotel Indiscreet. That's the Firesign Theater doing, doing that bit, you know, with the hippie fascist. It's, mm-hmm. it's, uh, I think it's Peter Bergman doing the voice, but you know, you could hear other, Voices and doing clearing their throats and coughing and stuff like that, cause, I guess because of all the patchouli oil in the air or the incense or whatever's happening, and and that's just I, I don't quite know like like uh, Gary Usher was so in, Gary Usher was so enthusiastic about them he would just use them at like the drop of a hat. They write right. the liner notes for the Illinois Speed Press as well, which hmm. is weird. And then he also used them in a bird song as well on on uh, Notorious Birds Brothers. They do like a montage in that song. So I'm going to play this song as well, because I, I think it's sort of interesting, the use of the montage in this song as well. So this is Draft Morning. This is a David Crosby song from uh, the Birds album, the album that got him kicked out of the band. This is the Notorious Bird Brothers, which features three members of the band and a horse's ass so- in, a, in, a, uh, in a stable. So I guess, I guess there was some sort of message to David Crosby there. But anyway, so let's listen to Draft Morning. It's a beautiful song, because David Crosby is a great songwriter even though he's a, a ginormous jerk as a human being. Although I think he's maybe better now, but at this time, a-hole extraordinaire. But let's give a listen to Draft Warning, everyone. Well, he fell into the Stephen Stills camp of jock. 
yeah. type, right? Yeah. Yeah. Alpha male. Yeah. yeah that yeah. kind of, uh, that kind of, what was it, private school, um, like, lacrosse player <laughs> yeah, yeah. vibe? Oh, someone posted, like, I, I follow David Crosby on Twitter, and, yeah. and someone posted this clip of, like, Crosby's, like, lying in a hammock, obviously, like, high, and still comes, stomps over to him, and he's just yelling in his face. And they said, and they just said, what do you think about this, David? And he just went, oh, typical stills, but I love Steven. <laughs> so, <laughs> I guess, if you know, he's just like, that's just the way it was. But yeah. Steven Stills, you had to deal with a guy, he's just like a, an intense dude. So, mm-hmm. he didn't like it. He didn't like it. But, yeah. So. All right. Let's listen to Draft Warning. Okay. So that was the birds with the draft warning. And Mary, you could hear again the same sort of thing—a kind of a sonic collage in the middle of the song, with obviously thematic to the to the song itself. Draft yes. warning. Yeah, this one's not as um, as jarring. Yeah. 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 As it sort of comes in to the and the and the, and the bass is still kind of playing underneath what's happening mm-hmm. so, and the drums, I guess, too. So it's, it's kind of yeah, like it feels like a part of the song. Rather than like someone turned off the song, yeah, yeah, and then like accidentally recorded something happening outside, and then was like, "Oh crap!" We stopped recording the song, and then started recording the song again. 
<laughs> That's what happened with My World Fell Down. There was a bullfight outside the uh, studio. <laughs> so, yeah. So, I mean, after he did My World Fell Down, which did well. It wasn't like a super big hit, but it did well. Uh, label president Clive Davis wanted to hear more from this group. He's like, well, this guy, this guy band's pretty good. Like, what else have they done? And Gary Asher didn't want to tell him that it was him who had done it. Because then Clive, Clive Davis would say, what, you have spare time? Well, I've got more bands for you to produce. So, because he wanted to keep, like, some time for himself. And so, he uh, he quickly started, like, throwing together, like, a group. And so, part of that was him working with Kurt Betcher. Yes, Kurt Betcher. Oh, okay. Someone we hear about, have heard about quite often yep. during these shows. Uh, so, you know, he really wanted to work with Kurt Betcher. So, he bought out Kurt Betcher's contract with Our Productions. And part of that buyout was he also had to purchase the unreleased recordings of Kurt Betcher's band, The Ballroom. So he ended up suddenly with all these tracks. And so some of those songs, without even like re-recording them, were just at, put on the Sagittarius album. They just mixed them for stereo. Oh, really? And put wow. them on the Sagittarius album just to, for a little bit of more material. Right. And then used a bunch of Kurt Betcher songs. I mean, you got them. Yeah, you got right? them. You use them, yeah. No one else has heard them. And, so, and then also, uh, Betcher was putting together The Millennium at this time, his band The Millennium. And so those guys were also used as session musicians, so they had some money. While they, while he was getting uh, the album, you know, the contracts and stuff settled. So Usher, uh, and, and then also he had to turn to outside writers as well. And so that's what this song is. This song is written by a guy named Michael Z. Gordon. Okay. And another name, guy named James Griffin. Griffin would go on to um, to be in the 70s super group Bread, really big group in the early 70s. They were just seemed to be on the radio all the time. But yeah, so they based it on like a Peyton Place style novel, the paperback novel they found. And so they, that's what Hotel Indiscreet was based hmm. on. Once again, Clive Davis hated the weird segments in both of these sing- sing- right. uh, both of these singles. Not a uh, not a risk taker. Feeling that they hurt the eye. No, he's all about the money. That guy. Yeah, I watched some documentary with him, and it was just like praising him for his his music. You know, his love of music, and and you know, <laughs> and it's just like this guy who's like all about the hits. Right. And it doesn't matter what kind of like garbage he puts out there. You know, like yeah. You know, like one minute we're hearing about Santana. How great they are. And the next minute we're hearing about how great Barry Manilow is. Mm-hmm. You're like, well, okay, Barry Manilow. <laughs> and poor Barry Manilow, he's like, I want to play my songs. And Clive Davis is this, no, you've got to have the hits. Yeah. Let me give you these other people's songs for you to sing. Yeah. So you can have the hits, Barry. Ah, this Once you have the hits, yeah. then you can do your own songs. Ah, this music lover. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the thing you think. Patron of the arts, that guy. <laughs> That's right. I have brought this company millions of dollars. That shows you what a great artist I am. I can spot talent from a million miles away, as long as they have singles that are hits. <laughs> yeah. As long as they have singles that are hits and don't try anything artistic <laughs> at all, ever. That's right. I don't want to hear any music concrete sections in any of my new my new artists. And who the hell signed Iggy Pop to my label? You're fired. <laughs> That's a true story. Really? Yep. Oh wow. So yeah, and here's now Mary. Dad. I don't know if you noticed this. Mm-hmm. The band's called Sagittarius. Mm-hmm. The two singles singles, singles have Vir- the two B sides. I mean, yeah, Libra and Virgo and uh, Virgo. And uh, so I thought it'd be kind of funny mm-hmm. to listen. Mary, mm-hmm. to an album that Gary Usher did in 1967 okay. called The Astrology Album, Oh, which he produced as kind of a creative outlet. He wanted a creative outlet that wouldn't compete with the bands that he was producing. Okay. And so he put together like this kind of spoken word album called The Astrology Album. So it has music in the background. Mm-hmm. And then it has 
people talking over it. it has interviews with with artists that he worked with right my okay was more just because it seems like if you're trying to not compete with your other with your band Sagittarius, why would you put out an astrology? Oh no, this is before based? Sagittarius. Oh, okay, okay, okay. okay. Sixty-seven. Oh, okay. Present tense came out in sixty-eight. I thought you said, I thought you said seventy. Oh no, no, yeah, sixty-seven. So, uh, which is weird because Usher's old writing partner, mm-hmm. DJ Roger Christian, who mm-hmm. he wrote a lot of Hot Rod songs with, because Roger Christian was a huge Hot Rod fan. Okay. Who also worked with Brian Wilson, wrote one of Brian Wilson's greatest songs. Well, co-wrote. I shouldn't say wrote it because Brian Wilson, of course, wrote his own songs. Everyone wrote the music, yeah. but he also he did the lyrics for "Don't Worry, Baby," which is like a great, great song. Mm. And uh, but he also released an album that year called "Discover Yourself Through Astrology." Hmm. But we're gonna listen. We're gonna listen to the Gary. People Usher are one. getting into astrology, apparently. Yeah, they were really were. So we're gonna listen to we're gonna listen to you first, Mary. Me, Virgo. Oh, nice. You're Virgo, right? Yes, I am. Yeah. So let's give a listen. Can't you tell? <laughs> Based on my meticulous personality and oh. my well, let's listen to let's listen to what Virgo has to say. Okay, or what they have to say about Virgo. Right, so Virgo, the Hermione Granger of uh, astrological. If you signs. were born August twenty second to September twenty second, you are under the sixth sign in the zodiac known as Virgo. Your ruling planet is Mercury. Your key word is order. Your symbol <laughs> is the Virgin. As a Virgo, you're possessed of a methodical, sensitive nature. Since you're ruled by Mercury, you're bound to have a vigorous and acute mind. Thus, you have tremendous organizational abilities. However, you must watch a tendency to become cool and aloof in order to protect your sensitivity. Virgo is an Earth sign. You'll find yourself on friendly terms with most members of your sister signs, Capricorn and Taurus. For romance, Water signs will bring out the best in you, and you'll find yourself able to share your deepest secrets with them. You may find yourself, as a Virgo, burdened with a certain amount of selfishness. Just use your Mercurian mind to realize that sharing will make you happier than hoarding. Is that true, Mary? Your nature makes you very prone to be hurt easily, but you must be very careful not to overcompensate. A Virgo who has maintained balance is Cass of the Mamas and Papas. Your lucky day is Wednesday, and your lucky number is three. Your gem is sapphire, your color is green. With your organizational abilities, you should, as a Virgo, have no trouble attaining financial security. However, if you're hoping for riches, you'll have to use all your Mercury wits and Virgo patience to do it. Virgo women are known as excellent wives and homemakers, so they should choose their clothes to accentuate their womanliness. Pale, soft colors are best. And the Virgo man should choose, when possible, to wear well-tailored suits in subtle checks. Dark, rich earth colors will look well on him if they're mixed with green. With your ability for hard work and mental quickness, you should have no problem with school or study. You may find that your favorite subjects are the social sciences. What do you think of that, Mary? What do you think of that? Well, I thought it was somewhat accurate. <laughs> of course, always. <laughs> but, I mean, that's, you know, anyway, they always are. I want to see you dressing more womanly, by the way. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> that was great. All right, do you want to listen to mine? Do you want to listen to Pisces? Yeah, sure. Let's right. see. Let's see what they have to say about the fish. The fish. Here we go. You ready? Yes. If you were born February the 19th to March 20th, you're under the 12th sign of the zodiac, Pisces. Your ruling planet is Neptune. 
Your huh? key word is awakening. <laughs> your symbol is the fishes. That's true. As a Pisces, you're ruled generally by your emotions, and you have a strong true. tendency to avoid decisions in favor of romantic daydreaming or some other form of escape. This hurts. Remember that being a Pisces, you're of a spiritual nature, and you may have psychic powers, but these things are valueless to you unless you can find the willpower to live in the world and not escape from it. Indecision will dog you throughout your life if you don't conquer it early. You have a charming disposition and make friends easily. That's true. Pisces is a water sign, and so you'll find your sister signs, Scorpio and Cancer, understanding of you. For Long romance, Scorpio. try to turn your affections toward an earth sign, such as Capricorn. A relationship like that will do much to fulfill your life. Oh. You have a great leaning toward the arts that should be encouraged. <laughs> you'll never really be happy unless you're involved with exciting people and constant change. You're naturally dignified, but you Constant have a tendency change? to no. relapse into prideful selfishness if hurt. That's true. At times like this, you may become overbearing and cold, the exact opposite of your true nature. John Sebastian of the Love and Spoonful is a typically creative Pisces. Hmm. Your lucky day is Friday, and your lucky number oh. is four. Isn't everyone? Your gem is amethyst, <laughs> your color is light blue. Money can be very hard to come by for you, Perhaps because you may want it too much. Hmm. Learn to relax and go about your work calmly, and you'll find that opportunities will arise which you never saw before. Always think things over carefully before taking financial action. A Pisces woman should avoid a tendency to overdress. She'll attract more attention with a simple wardrobe, leaving the frills for her jewelry. And the Pisces man also should try for simplicity in fashions, He'll look best in shades of blue with subtle patterns. As a Pisces, you may have a hard time in school with subjects that don't particularly interest you. Just remember that you must work hard to keep from becoming an incomplete person. You may find English your favorite subject. If you were born a Pisces, you share your sign with Mickey Dolenz of the Monkees. Yes. George Harrison of the Beatles. Yes. Brian Jones from the Rolling Stones. Eh. Mike Love of the Beach Boys. Oh, boy. John Sebastian of the Love and Spoonful. Yay. And Mark Lindsay from Paul Revere and the Raiders. Mm. All right. Well, that was interesting, right, Mary? Yeah, it was. That was fun. So, um, gentle listeners, if uh, you would like to hear your uh, astrology from this album, or astrological sign, sorry, astrology. I don't know what I'm talking about. If you'd like to hear your horoscope from uh, this <laughs> this album, let us know your your sign. If it has, if we didn't cover it with uh, with Virgo and Pisces, let us know. Maybe we, in our final episode, our final episode of, of listening party, we'll we'll play some more of these for people. If you want to, if you want to hear your your sign, what, what uh, that what that has to say. Sorry, it sounds a little. Um, it was a bit S-y sounding to me, a bit sibilant, but that's because it's recorded off of a record. Mm. I recorded off a record that I have. Well, that it I found many years ago in a Salvation Army of all places. Hmm. Why they let an ast astrology album in a Salvation Army, I'll never know. <laughs> but that was fun, though. I thought you'd enjoy that. Yes, yeah. I did. It was fun. All right. Let's move on, Mary. All right. This is The Fugs. Okay. The song is Wet Dream. Mm-hmm. The album is Tenderness Junction, okay, and the year was 1968, hmm. and their astrology sign was. <laughs> Let's listen to the song now, everyone. Wet dream. 
about you mary but i was looking through my old old yearbook during that song but uh anyhow what do you think of it um i'm kind of meh i was kind of meh on that song why were you meh on that song well i don't love the genre the 50s yeah i'm i I feel like i'm i'm starting to well yeah that 50s sound i don't love i feel like i'm starting to experience some sort of stockholm syndrome (laughs) with 50s music because i have to listen to it so much at work now Okay. Um, Stockholm is accepting it, not rejecting it, but okay. No, that's what I'm saying. Like, I'm starting to like it more. Oh, you're starting to like it more? Oh, Yeah, that's why I was meh on this rather than I didn't like it, which I probably would have been a couple months ago. Yeah, yeah. But now I have to listen to that for like (laughs) an hour and a half every week. Yeah, yeah. At least. Yeah. Yeah, I try to choose a... It's hard with the Fugs. They did a lot of songs. A lot of them are obscure in in meaning now. Mm. A lot of them are crude. Yeah. This song is kind of crude, but it's not. Yeah. It's not as crude as as uh, you know, Coca Cola douche or Saran wrap or something like that, which is about an alternative to condoms. Right, seems uh, like a 
bad move. <laughs> uh, what's this song called again? Sorry, Wet Dream. Mm, right, right. Yeah, one thing I did like about this song was the like juxtaposition between like the sound yeah. and what you expect based on that sound yeah. and then the actual content of it. Sure, sure. Where you're like listening to it and you're like, oh, okay, and then you're like, <laughs> hold on, a s- what? What did you just say? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, the Fugs were, I mean, all right, let's talk about the Fugs, Mary. Because okay. they have, we were talking about, you know, black music in the 50s, and the Fugs, I think, kind of come out of that spirit only sort of for middle-class white kids, you know. Like, so the Fugs were formed by poet activist Ed Sanders, mm-hmm. who was from Missouri, okay. went to the University of Missouri, dropped out mm-hmm. in 1958, moved to Greenwich Village to be a beatnik. Right. And then also another poet activist, Thule Kupferberg. What? Thule Tuli? T-U-L-I. T. His real name was like Aftali, but he okay. called himself Tuli. Tuli okay. Kupferberg. Where is he from? New York City. And when you heard him, you could tell he was from New York City. He had that kind of really nasally. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, like the accent you were doing for that producer earlier. <laughs> that's right, for Clive Davis. Well, Clive Davis was all, even though his name was Clive Davis, he was not born Clive Davis. He was mm. he was also a Jew, New York Jew, you know, mm. so that is that a lawyer. Tuli? Aftuli? Aftali. Aftali, is that a Jewish name? I guess so. Hmm. I don't know for sure. A-P-H-T-A-L-I, I think. And and then also a guy from Texas named Ken Weaver. So the the scene, they were all kind of part of a scene together. It was centered around Ed Sanders' Peace Eye bookstore in Manhattan's Lower East Side, which apparently is gone now. The Lower East Side is no longer a thing. But when when... You know, when beatniks were the thing, when the early days of the 60s and stuff like that, the Lower East Side was where all the where all the cool people resided in New York. Also Greenwich Village, but these sort of like kind of outskirts of Manhattan. And Peace Eye Bookstore was based in a former kosher books, butcher shop. So Sanders had left the original Hebrew writing up on the window of the store. Oh, okay. And then added an eye of Horus to the to the window, which was the Peace Eye. And Looks like it's uh, from the Bible. Aftali, okay. It's a... Uh, wait, how do you spell it again, sir? I thought it was spelled A-P-H-T-A-L-I. T-A-L-I. Oh, yeah. I spelled it wrong. Okay. You may have spelled it right accidentally. I, I don't know. Or did you put the Thule in, did you? Uh, wait, was it, wait, wait. Naphtali? Oh, maybe it was Naphtali. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. That is the sixth son of Jacob. Oh, I see. Okay, so yes. He was the founder of the Israelite tribe of Naphtali. Mm, okay. So that's probably what it was. Yeah, yeah. And so he shortened it to Thule. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, Sanders was kind of a moving and shaking part of the scene. He founded an avant-garde literary journal called... Mary, can you guess what it was called? No. Fuck You, a magazine of the arts. Hmm, cool. And... Which got him, of course, into a lot of trouble. Well, yes, of course it did. <laughs> Even though he published the earliest issues in a... In a uh, like at a nunnery, basically. It was like a place where nuns organized okay. uh, peace, move, peace action and stuff cool. like that. And so he, they let him use their their photostat machine. Yeah. And so he would run, run off his sick. Run off his. Some, those are some pretty sweet nuns. <laughs> they were pretty good yeah. nuns. Yeah, they were like they were the kind that were cool, right? Like yeah. part of the part of the sort of yeah. revolutionary part of the, mm-hmm. the that led to the Vatican II and stuff like that. You mm, know, mm-hmm. Even though that was a compromise, it was raided by the police in 1966. The piece I bookstore was raided by the police, and uh, which resulted in him being featured on the cover of Life magazine. As the leader of New York City's other culture, which is pretty pretty cool, it also meant all of the movies that he'd made up to that point were were confiscated as pornography, although they weren't necessarily pornography, although some were pornography. 
but so one was a in- really interesting one to me. It was like a based on an exhibition he had done that involved uh, speed freaks making artwork. Okay. And so, like, Steve Weber from the Holy Mother Rounders was one of the people who created something for it, which was a radio that you controlled with magnets. You would tune with magnets, so depending where your arms were, hmm. you would control what this radio was sounding like. So cool. So, it was really good for someone who couldn't stay still. It obviously had, like, a good <laughs> purpose to it of, like, yeah. letting you tune in no matter what. Twitch. It was like a um, like a fidget spinner. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah for, for people who had problems. Anyway, Kupperberg founded his own literary journal in 1958 called Birth, and... He appears in Allen Ginsberg's seminal poem, Howl, as the guy who jumped off the Brooklyn Bridge and walked away unknown and forgotten into the ghostly days of Chinatown soups alleyways and fire trucks, not even one free beer. Which is true up to a point, but in reality, Kupferberg jumped off the Manhattan Bridge. He was picked up by a passing tugboat and taken to Governor Hospital because he, he was severely injured with a, with a uh, broken spine. Hmm. And had to spend a long time in a body cast. So don't be really sad near a bridge, is the advice that Tula Kupferberg has for you. It's good advice. Thank you. So Sanders, and Sanders, Kupferberg, and Weaver formed the Fugs in 1964. The name was taken from Norman Mailer's novel, The the Living and the Dead, I think it was called. I didn't write down the name of it, which is dumb of me, but I'm pretty sure it was The Living and the Dead. It was a war novel anyway. And in that book, he used fug as a word euphemism for the F word. Uh, so the band was inspired in part by the Greenwich Village folk scene, but also the nascent rock music kind of growing up in the Beatles' wake. And so they probably thought, this is a good way to meet girls, is part of what they're thinking, of course. Right. Now, I love the Fugs. I have all the records. Even their their uh, kind of combination off-cuts record with the, with the Fugs, or with the Holy Mother Rounders called, I think it's called Rounder Score, or Fugs 4 Rounder Score. But... I will admit to anyone who tells me this, that their early music is just a racket. And the fact that they were joined by Peter Stamfel and, and Steve Weber as their musical backers, because they didn't, they couldn't, the rest of the folks couldn't actually play instruments at all. Right. It was just like, they're just, they're conceptualists. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they just did like songs like the Swinburne Stomp and S- uh, CIA Man. And of course, the ones I mentioned, Coca-Cola Douche and mm-hmm. Slum Goddess. And so they had all these kind of songs that they just wrote on the spur of the moment as just funsies. Right. And it was just like so fascinating to, to, Weber and Stamfel because they couldn't really do that yet. They were they were still like doing covers of old folk songs in a very in a very not in a in a very um, true way. Like they weren't doing it in a way like an archivist would or whatever. Right. They were very loosey goosey with you know combining rock and roll lyrics with folk stuff and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But they weren't writing their own songs yet. And so they just found like this really interesting that the Fugs would like you know do like a rock version of Howl right. and called the, I saw the best minds of my generation, which is a really cool song, but. Uh, we won't play it today. You know, this, so the lyrics are typically counterculture of the time, pro-drugs, pro-sex, mm-hmm. anti-government, pro-peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then as crudely, crudely stated as possible as well. Right, of course. Because you wanted to offend your mom and dad. Yes. You know, and the, and, cause, and also they existed in a kind of interesting time. The beatniks were dead. The beatniks were over. Mm-hmm. But hippies weren't around yet. Right. So they were kind of this... You're kind of in between. Yeah, but they were sort of this counterculture that didn't have like a name yet. Right. You know, and... And so they were part of like they're part of like the um, the voter registration movement in the South. Ed Sanders went down to the South and, and registered voter registered black voters down there. Right, right. Did all this kind of good, good yeah, trying to like enfranchise yeah, people. Yeah, yep. and it, it's a uh, wonderfully uh, documented in a, in a series of novels he wrote, which have been kind of collected into uh, under the umbrella Tales of Beatnik Glory. 
It's just they're kind of short stories detailing different elements of that time period. A lot of them based in autobiography, and it's a really great book. It's by Ed Sanders, Tales of Beat Nick Glory. Totally recommend it, Mary. If you want to read it, it's in the house. But it's really great. Uh, just a, as a description of that time period and, and right. the good and the bad Dad, of it. I'm sorry, but I'm in the middle of three different book series right now, so <laughs> I think fine. it'll take me some time That's to fine. get there. But I think you'd be interested in it, especially historically of that time period. Cool. So by 1967, the Fugs, which who seemed to add and shed members yearly, mm-hmm. had reached kind of this point where they had like the regular Fugs, right? Not musical. Yep. Writing songs, but not musical people. Mm-hmm. But with except for Ken Weaver played drums, like literally played drums, right? But they they had added three really great musicians to the group. Ken Pine on guitar, mm-hmm. Danny Cart Korchmar, for reasons best known to them, called Danny Cooch in all the credits at this point. Danny Korchmar on guitar and and uh, a guy. Dad, I think that the reason for that is because it's funny. <laughs> Play guitar and violin, Korchmar, and then Charles Larkey on bass. And Korchmar and Larkey would leave the Fugs to join Carol King's group, The City. Later on, and then also back her on her solo album, like the gajillion selling tapestry and stuff like that. And I think Korchmar married Carol King for a while as well, was married to her for a while. So this group, this version of the group, the, the group was originally signed to New York's resident weirdo label ESP Disc at a percentage Sanders once described as one of the lower percentages in the history of Western civilization. <laughs> but then they got to sign to Atlantic Records, which was a big deal in 1967. Yeah. Uh, they recorded an entire album for Atlantic called The Fugs Eat It. And then they got kicked off the label. They didn't get released. They just got they just got thrown off the label. Oh, really? Upon hearing it, Atlanta said, "There's the door. Please <laughs> use it." Why? I don't ever. I never understand why labels sign weird bands, and then when those weird bands make weird music, they're like, "What? Yeah. What? Yeah. Why did you make this weird music? Like you knew that before you signed them." Mm-hmm. You you signed them because they were doing well with their weird music. Yeah. Why are you why do you why are you mad that they're making weird music now? Well, that, 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 I mean, okay. Here's the here. I'll describe to you why, Mary. Why it happens. Okay. It's first thing. None of these guys knew what was going on. Like everything they when were doing. When you say these guys, like Atlantic Records. Okay. Like maybe jazz, R and B, soul music and stuff like that. They had they had their finger on the pulse. Right. But everything else, they were lost. They were completely yeah. lost. They were just looking. They were looking for rock bands mm-hmm. that they could sign to their label, and would sell and give right. them some cachet. Yes. So the Fugs and some cash and some ca- cash. Most most important of all, <laughs> as long as you put out a single, they will sell a lot of records. Yeah. I'm I'm happy to back whatever you're doing. Right. But the but the reality was is that the Fugs what they turned in you know was viewed as not commercial. Yes. Well, you know, because these guys didn't know what they were signing. They just thought. They're popular. Yeah. Their leader's been on the cover of Life magazine. Right. They sell out shows. They have like yep. residencies at the Garrick Theater in, yep. in, in, in New York City, which is why the the why the Mothers of Invention eventually came to the Garrick Theater in New York City, because they had heard about the Fugs playing there. Oh, really? They mm-hmm. thought, oh, that sounds like a really good idea. So yeah. they came to New York and, and did the same thing. They did mm-hmm. a residency there. Um, is this, yeah, like I, I know, I get that their main thing is money and yeah. they didn't know what was going on. Yeah. But you'd think that they would at least listen to their stuff before signing them, you know? <laughs> yes. And then not, yeah, like. But I also think you also think you think we can change them, right? We can make them better. Yes. You know, and so much of the music—they're like every person who like sees all the red flags in a relationship and is like, yeah, yeah. I can fix that person. Yeah. No, you can't. <laughs> so, so the band was then signed to Reprise Records, which was a label co-owned by Frank Sinatra. 
And when Mo Austin, the uh, the, the label president for for Reprise, played the Fugs for Sinatra, because he would play all the artists for Sinatra, so Sinatra knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. Sinatra shrugged and said, "I guess you know what you're doing." Tuh. And that was all that was said about it. And what's right. and to Austin's credit, he never censored the Fugs. He never censored them. Didn't matter. That's a great. song like a song like Wet Dream, which has the word has the F word in it. Yeah. You know. Yes. Uh, it definitely has uh, some I, I some challenging ideas. <laughs> <laughs> some challenging ideas. You know, yeah, and had like drug songs like tune in, turn on, or turn on, tune in, drop out on mm-hmm. it on the first, on tenderness junction. So basically what what they did in sixty eight was they took mo- a lot of the songs that they recorded for Atlantic, which they weren't allowed to use because they belonged to Atlantic Records, but they re recorded them all for two albums for reprise. So right. their first album was Tenderness Junction, which Wet Dream comes from. And then later on in 68, they did It Crawled Into My Hand, Honest, which of course is a great excuse for something that boys do, Mary. Yes. I will, won't explain it to you. I, you don't need to. Well, you're a girl, so you don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah, that's... But, you know, I yeah. don't want to explain it to you because I don't want to offend your dainty Virgo virginity. Right. Yes. We've all already so established that, was, that. That's the... What was it? The sign or whatever. <laughs> the sign. Sure. <laughs> your your that's, star sign or whatever. Yeah. It's not star sign. It was something like that. I can't remember. The symbol. That's your symbol. Your Thanks, symbol. guys. Mine is fishes. Yeah. I don't know which is worse. I don't like fish. Well. I know what you're saying about this song, but I feel like this song kind of falls into that same sort of thing as like, what's the song we played earlier? A big 10-inch record. Yeah. And stuff like that, where it's it's just, it's raunchiness, but it's done for a reason, which yeah. is to which offend... Is, it's, yeah, it's fighting back it, against the repressive, society. The repressive right? culture yeah. of the time, right? No, I understand that. Yeah. I, no, I said I, I I liked the juxtaposition oh, okay, okay. between the expectation of what the song is going to be like yeah. based on the sound, yeah, yeah. and then when you actually listen to the lyrics. Like, <laughs> yeah. I think that's fun. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you're kind of met on it as, in terms of execution? Or? I just don't like that sound very much. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, fair enough, fair enough. Yeah. yeah, I think it's. I think it's. Yeah, it's very wittily done. I mean, it's obviously making fun of several different layers of of American culture. I mean, kind of poking mm-hmm. fun at doo wop music. Yep. But not really. More of an affectionate pastiche. Yeah. But then taking that time period of and taking all the all the symbols of that time mm-hmm. period, the the Queen of the Prom most notably, and then turning her into a symbol of for a dirty lewd minded. Yeah. You know, song that. Like, yeah. Well, yeah. It's just like uncovering <laughs> everything that's all over, like. It's uncovering what's already there. Yeah, yeah, right? exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's yeah. it's saying like at this time, this is what the expectation was, but that's not the reality of how people actually are. Yeah, yeah. One thing I like that the Fugs did was they took a bunch, a big flatbed truck with huge speakers on it mm-hmm. down to Washington D.C. Yeah, and performed an exorcism of the Pentagon. <laughs> they just had these giant speakers of going out, yeah. demons out. Yeah, out. <laughs> Who's in office at that time? Uh, that would have been Johnson. Mm. I don't know anything about that person. Lyndon Johnson? Yeah. He became president after uh, Kennedy was killed. Right. But did not run again, actually, because he just got so admired in the Vietnam War, he couldn't mm. get out of it. And just felt like he was just having no fun, and he just left yeah. politics. But to be fair to him, he also was the reason the Civil Rights Act was passed. Good. You know, and he knew when he signed it that he was cutting his own party's throat for yeah. a while in the South, but he did it anyway. So, you got to do stuff like that, right? Yeah. Like Show some political balls. Yeah. So that's the fugs, everyone. Mm-hmm. Once again, highly recommend them. Hard to find nowadays, but uh, when I was a kid, the first one I bought was It Crawled Into My Hand Honest because I thought that title was hilarious and yeah. I found it at a, at a record store. But I'd heard them before that because they were on a reprise, Warner reprise sampler called The Big Ball, hmm. a set of songs just by yeah. all kinds of different bands, including Frank Zappa and stuff. And yeah, 
at that time, reprise this had like the hippest axe. It had had the mothers of invention. Yeah, had the fugs. Mm-hmm. Tim Buckley. Yep. Uh, yeah, just lots yeah. of great stuff. I wonder what I wonder what the fugs would think of. Like them at the time, yeah. would think of the t- Netflix show Big Mouth. Okay, which is like an exploration of seventies, though, isn't it? Seventies. Big Mouth. Yeah. No, no, that's it's a modern day. It's the oh, animated okay. one, but it's like looking at like preteen sexuality. Okay, okay. And so it's like these kids who were like twelve, thirteen, mm. who were all just starting to go through pu- puberty. Yeah. But like explores it. In, like, a very, like, frank and honest way. Yeah. Looking at, like, all the bad things and all the good things about it. Well, I think Ed Sanders is still alive. He lives in Woodstock. Yeah. He still publishes a newspaper there, the Woodstock Journal or something like that. Oh, yeah. Uh, With his wife, who he's been married to for 47 years. Oh, wow. That's great. He wrote a great book about Charles Manson called The Family. Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm-hmm. His was the first book about the family that came out. So, it sold really well Mm because people were so curious about it. Uh, the book, the version I have is a Reader's Digest version. Not, oh, okay. Or like, a, no, no, not a Reader's, a book club version. Oh, okay. So it's printed a little more cheaply than a, a leg- right. legitimate. And it has paper. a bunch of questions in the back, like, what do you think? <laughs> what, why do you no, think Charles Manson killed those people? It doesn't have any questions. But what's cool you know, about it you know is it's you... the original version. So Because the later versions, had, they had to remove chapters because they, oh. they got sued by the Process Church of the Enlightenment. Ugh. And so... Uh, and so that the version I have has those chapters in it. Cool. And it's really cool because I think I talked about this in Sneaky Dragon recently, but uh, Sanders, when he first got the, he was working for the LA Free Press at the time. And when, when the thing came over the telex, when the story came over the telex that the police had arrested a bunch of hippies in the desert. Yeah. He's like, oh man, the man is cracking down on the, the hippies again. And so he went yeah. to cover it from that angle. Yeah. And then he started to like uncover what was happening. Right. And, and so for him, it was like, uh, uh, like, he had no knowledge about what it was. And yeah. so he was like following all these leads around LA and, mm-hmm. and taking him down into these weird different alley, into these dead ends or cool. possible places where the doors were closed to him and he couldn't right. get any farther. He got to spend time at the Spawn Ranch with the other, with, with the, oh, yeah. with the family, mm. like the people who were left from after yeah. the arrests were happening and stuff like that. So he met them and talked to yeah. them. And, and well, I mean, I imagine that he would have had not like with, at least with the family he would have had more of an in yeah, yeah. than like a, any other journalist would mm-hmm, have right because mm-hmm. he was on their side when he went there yeah. right like that's how you talk to people right sure, you you sure. express sympathy you don't go down there treating them like they're a sideshow especially yeah. when in reality they were just a bunch of like brainwashed kids well he called them vampires but yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, no, he did not think very highly of them. Yeah. Like, a lot of the stuff they he, they did, he was very... It's a very condemna- condemnatory book, which yeah. is interesting as well. Because, you know, he's reacting viscerally to what, mm-hmm. to what he's learning as well. Yeah. It's a, quite a good book. I highly recommend it. Cool. I don't recommend any of their books about that stuff. Yeah, that's fair. All right, let's move on to our next song, Mary. All right, what is it? This is The Cheater. The song I cheated on, because we were talking about Roy Wood earlier, who was in The Move. This song is by The Move. What? This is Cherry Blossom Clinic Revisited, bracket edit, bracket, because I edited this song down from the seven minutes that it is on the, on the album down to a more, a more easy to swallow three minutes or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So let's give it a listen, everybody. This is Cherry Blossom Clinic Revisited uh, from their 1970 album Shazam. Here is The Move. It was one morning when I woke up and uh, I found out that they'd signed some papers 
and that I was I was going to be kept in a bed, um, owing to the state of my mind. And then I found out that the uh, that the authorities had said um, that I'd got to have special food fed to me for me thoughts. Um, and I think it's because well, because I was going off my. How much do you like this song? I love this song. This is such a good song. <laughs> it's a good song. Isn't yeah, it? it's a really fun song. Yeah, it's fun. Um, when it starts, yeah. it's like slow at the beginning. Yeah. And then it's like, it's like it punches you yeah. musically when it's when the music starts. Yeah. You know, it's just such like a... Yeah, it's like, really like super heavy song. Yeah. It's it's a cover of their own song. Yeah, it's like a very dense song. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a cover of their own song, which was called Cherry Blossom Clinic, that came out as a single or something like that mm-hmm. in the in the early or the mid '60s. And by this point, I mean this is only their second album, as I was saying earlier. Shazam was only their second album, and but they changed their sound so much. They'd gone from like being a very kind of light psychedelic group of that kind of sound of the right. time period. You know, I can hear the grass grow and and stuff like that. And suddenly they're just like doing these really punchy bassy drum driven songs yeah. you know like there's a single that came out around this time as well called brontosaurus which is like this crazy driving thumping song which is what it was supposed to be it was supposed to be like a brontosaurus you yeah know? and and i think they really sent the template for like bands like kiss mm-hmm. and cheap chicken stuff like that which is like to be really heavy but to also have like these really tight harmonies as yeah. well you know because like 
I remember as a kid, like hearing, like hearing a boat kiss and being like, man, this band sounds like the craziest, heaviest band of all time. And when I finally heard them, I was like, what? <laughs> this is pop music, but yeah. like louder guitars yeah. here, you know? You know, and the, but they're all like, there was all like that. But I mean, I still like them, but I was just kind of disappointed by yeah. what the hype made me think that mm-hmm. they had a comic published with their own blood in it. You're like, whoa, these guys must be crazy. <laughs> then you hear it and they're just like, you know, uh, you know, whatever. I want to rock and roll all night <laughs> and party every day. <laughs> like, well, that's not quite what I expected yeah. from these guys, you know. Yeah. I keep wanting to say this, the Cheap Trick song, but it's not the Cheap Trick song song that they sang that I'm trying to think of, but ah, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. But yeah, so so yeah, they got this... This was like their final hurrah, this album, really, but it's such a great album. But the thing is, the reason the song is edited is it goes from like the end of the song, then goes into this, like, playing the guitar. They start doing like classical guitar, like classical tunes Okay. for another four minutes. So I was kind of like, uh, who wants to hear that, really? Come on. Yeah. But I mean, that's that's how the live shows were. They were like really stretching out on stage. And, that's, hmm. and I think that was like ref- part of why Roywood wanted to, to stop the move. Like end the move as a band and start ELO because right. he was interested in combining like classical music and rock music in the way that they were doing as part of like the the end of songs. You yeah, know? and they did that like a couple songs, like well, three or four songs on on Shazam are like short pop song, two to three minutes, and then seven minutes sitar workout mm-hmm. with Roy Wood playing the sitar. You know? Yeah, or this song with another like like another five minutes of of playing uh, Tchaikovsky. Themes from Tchaikovsky songs and yeah. it's a Beethoven or whatever, and it's fun, but it's uh, you know, it's not what you want on a mixtape. Okay, next song, Mare. Okay, this is man. I still remember when I first heard this this singer, Wanda Jackson, uh, most famous for her song "Let's Have a Party," mm-hmm. because you know what? She's uh, never kissed a goose. She's never kissed a bear, mm-hmm. but she can shake a, shake a chicken in the middle of the room. Oh, it's actually, I never kissed a bear, mm-hmm. never kissed a goose, but I can shake a chicken in the middle of the room. Let's have a party. Ooh. Anyway, <laughs> uh, but this song is different. This is a Hot Dog, That Made Him Mad, mm-hmm. which was a single in the, uh, in, the, in the 50s, but came out on a record in 1960 after she had the hit with Let's Have a Party. Yep. They reissued a bunch of her, her sides from the 50s on one album called Rockin' with Wanda. <laughs> and everyone, this is, this is Hot Dog. That made him mad. Let's give it a listen, everyone. I've got a guy. I like him fine. But he takes me for granted all of the time to teach him a lesson and make him mad. I went out on a date with the best friend he had. That made him mad, boy. Hot dog that made him mad. Me and he kissed me and he asked me not to do it again. Oh, late last night when I came in, he demanded to know just where I'd been. But I really put him right in his place. Instead of an answer, I laughed in his face. That made him mad, boy. Hot dog, that made him mad. So he hugged me and he kissed me and he asked me not to do it again He said 
said my heart is on my sleeve And if I didn't change that he would leave Well, you should have seen him Was his face red when I laughed and told him Just go right ahead, that made him mad, boy I thought that made him mad So he hugged me and he kissed me And he asked me not to do it again Well, the moral is to play it cool Let your guy know you're nobody's fool When he gets to thinking you're all his own Let him know that you can take him or leave him alone That makes him mad, boy I thought that makes him mad And he'll hug you and he'll kiss you And he'll ask you not to do it again Yeah, he'll hug you All right, and we're back. Mary, what did you think of this little well, this little song? A, Rockin' with Wanda sounds like it would be something as a part of WandaVision on okay, Disney+. Plus, sure, okay. Which, by the way, Dad. Yeah. I have been watching without you. Oh, no. I've been putting off watching it. Well, oh, really? Thought, oh, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for telling me, though. I yeah. I have to wait now. Yeah. Um, uh, I thought the song was cute. Yeah. I liked her singing. Sure, sure. It's great, isn't it? Like yeah. She says that hot dog that made him mad. Yeah. I mean, that's just perfectly read. Yes. Perfect reading of that line. Yeah. Uh, bad message, though. Any kids out there listening to this song, um, <laughs> communicate with your with your partner. Don't just yeah. don't just like do things to make the other person angry because that's not a very healthy relationship. <laughs> it isn't. Oh, well, no, it's not. Been, that's what I've been following. Well, stop it. Yes. <laughs> but yeah, and there are a lot of people who still do that. You know, try to like make their partner jealous. Yeah. To yeah, to like make sure that they still like each other or something, and it's like well, just talk to them, you know. I don't, I don't know. People are, people are so funny. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this song was written by guys for for someone to sing. It was originally done by a jazz, oh, yeah. jazz I mean, combo, like kind of a you know, as a crooning song in yeah. the in the early fifties. It, it was written in a in a. The lyrics are probably written in a boardroom or whatever, right? Like, <laughs> well, in an office, yeah, yeah an office yeah. on a typewriter, and yeah. two guys, one guy on the piano playing the playing the notes, the other guy going, "What about this line?" Yeah. And uh, but I think you know, it's just a fun goof, you know. Yeah. I don't think she was serious about it. I don't think anyone was. Mm-hmm. Um, once again, Wanda Jackson, one of those incredible singers. Yep. Won a talent contest when she was in high school. Got a radio show out of it. Cool. Was so so, so popular in her t- in Oklahoma City that. She, it was a half an hour was added to it. Mm. Uh, then this country popular country music, a guy named ha- Hank Thompson was going th- coming through town, playing in town. Heard her on the radio, mm-hmm. invited her to play with him. Cool. Said you're really great. Got her got her to record with him. Record a few songs. She had a big hit with a, with a duet with Billy Gray called "You Can't Have My Love." Hit number eight in the country charts. Oh wow! So she asked. She went to with, with through what Capitol year Records. Was that that would have been mid fifties. Okay. And she went to. Um, she went to Capitol and, you know, asked, like, we wanted a contract with them to record more songs. And she was told by this producer there, this guy named uh, Ken Nelson, that girls don't sell records. Hmm. So, no. So, she signed with Decca Records. Yeah. And she recorded with them. And then after graduation, she began to tour with her father as manager. 
her mom de- designed her clothes. Her mom made her clothes <laughs> for her. So she wore different kind of clothes than you'd see a normal country singer wear. She right. wore these dresses with fringe on them. Okay. With high heel shoes and these big long earrings. Hmm. Kind of glam. Glammed it up a bit. Right. She played played with and briefly dated Elvis Presley. Oh, wow. And he was the one who suggested that she should start singing rockabilly music. Mm. He said he would have a really great voice for rockabilly. Right. So she started doing rockabilly songs like uh, Fujiyama Mama and mm. Hot Dog That Made Him Mad and stuff like yep. that. And you know what? Fuji- big, the place that Fujiyama Mama sold the best, Mary? Where? Japan. Oh, did it? <laughs> yeah, it's weird, right? But it's, yeah. But that's the thing. She's that hot. Radioactively yeah. hot. Yep. Yeah. And so in 1956, she signed with, with Capitol. Mm-hmm. And started recording them, and she basically told them, I want to have the same sound mm-hmm. that Gene Vincent, who are also capital artists, that Gene mm-hmm. Vincent and the Blue Caps have. They, they're the ones who did Bebop Alula. Okay. She's my baby. You know, they, they had this really kind of echoey, mm-hmm. you know, kind of crazy rockabilly sound, and that's what yeah. she wanted for her records. Yeah. And that's what, to his credit, even though he re- rejected her in the past, Ken Nelson gave her that as mm-hmm. her producer. He, rec- you know, produced all her stuff for, for um, yeah, pretty good stuff. Yeah, she does have a great voice. She does have a great voice. Yeah, 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 for sure. Yeah, Uh, I have to think so because I have a nine-disc box set of her music. (laughs) Yeah. So, Mare. Yes. I was thinking that we're going to play the the final song as the last thing we're going to do in this show. Okay. And I'm just going to hint to people that you know this song very well. Listeners to Sneaky Dragon, listeners to to Listening Party, know this song and know it very well. But I think it'd just be fun to play it. We'll play it out with it. Yes, I think that's a good idea. You don't have to say who it is, because I think that you all will know it when you yeah. start to hear it. But so we'll let Mary yep. do her thing. Okay. And then we'll 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 play ourselves out this time. Okay. For a change. Yes. So Mary? Yep. I have one question for you before we end the show. Okay. If listeners want to write to us uh-huh. with their astrological signs. Yes. How would they do that? Well, there's a variety of options, Dad. Okay. Uh, the best thing to do is to go to our website, which is sneakydragon.com. Mm-hmm. There, there's a contact us area where you can find all of our contact information, including our email address, yeah. which is sneakyd at sneakydragon.com, okay. our Facebook page, which is Sneaky Dragon, our Twitter, which is sneaky underscore dragon. You can also comment on our um, sort of like forum message board thing, yeah. comment on each episode there. Okay. We often have some good conversations there. You can sure also do. find our smail- snail mail address, um, but I wouldn't suggest mailing us your astrological sign because <laughs> the snail is in the mail for a reason. <laughs> it's not as slow as you think, but it does take a while to get. It, it does. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, Dad. Yes. Do you like this last song? Oh, I love this last song. Yeah. I like it very much. What do you think about it? I like it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's, good song. It's a fun song. It is. It references it references uh, some, some musical stuff that I love mm-hmm. in a way that totally appeals to me because it's kind of in the know. Yeah. And... Um, I like the band. The band's great. The band is great. Yeah. Everything about this song is fantastic. Yeah. I like it so much. Well, you guys will, when you hear this song, <laughs> you think, is the, another show starting? <laughs> anyway so do you want to start the song dad yeah let's start it right now all right so everyone thanks for listening this week we hope you enjoyed our novelty songs and we hope you enjoy this last song very much and uh, don't forget to write to us yeah and thank you for everyone who's written in to our top 20 of 20 shows mm-hmm. and our last novelty uh tape sh- or novelty mix tape show i really appreciated your comments mm-hmm. it's a lot of fun so mary yes bye bye <laughs>
myself off my little motor car I love my dog I love my pussy cat I love the rat that lives under the floor and makes his bed from novel less I wish I could say the same for you The day will come soon when I look in your eyes but I've got a tongue like a little slug I won't be bugged by trivia I love my cow I love my brine, my tennis and my owl I can even find it in my heart to love my glove I wish I could say the same for you The day will come soon when I look in your eyes To see you smiling I could say the same